today is the day. I finally got to sit down with retired Navy SEAL commander and former governor of Missouri, Eric Greitens. Eric and I talk about his early days wanting to leave and find adventure, getting arrested in China, becoming a Rhodes Scholar, his time boxing, his humanitarian missions to Rwanda, Gaza, and more. We also discuss how he pivoted into the Navy, passing the daunting SEAL BUDS training, commanding a Mark V special operations craft, his nonprofit organization, The Mission Continues, how he eventually ran for and won the Missouri governorship, and the associated controversy and public shaming he endured. Last but not least, we discussed his incredible books, philosophy, and the importance of purpose. So please sit back and enjoy this really interesting conversation with Eric Greitens. But I do need you to sign all of these. I hope you brought like a bunch of pens because <laughs> I will I will I will make sure that we sign all of the books for you before we go. That's very handleable. Uh it's funny, I like I, I kind of stopped collecting books like a long time ago, and then I was like, I gotta get rid of. It. I have so many books. Like, what am I doing with all these books? I'm dragging them around from right. place to place. <laughs> I'm like, yes. why? I'm like never gonna read these again. But like, the only ones I kept. So my that's why my library is so small right now is only the ones that were signed. Mm. And so I'm mm. like, you know what? I should probably just get people to sign them so I won't throw them away. <laughs> you know, or, you it's know, a good strategy. You know, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's. I don't know. It's a strategy anyway. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. otherwise I'm like, why do I have these again? I have like 18 copies of this thing. Cause it keeps giving everyone's like, Oh, you should read this book. I'm like, right. I got like so many copies. <laughs> Hundreds. Yes. <laughs> why am I keeping them? So, um, <clears throat> what, so I have read your books now. Um, and I've learned a lot about you in the process. Um, and I feel like it would actually be fun just to kind of start from the beginning. Sure. Cause I remember one of your stories was, uh, about kind of early, early on when you were like a kid and you're like, I felt like I was missing out on interesting times. Like, yeah. what, what did you mean by that? And what, what, what was that sensation like, like looking around at history books and going, wow, it was so different and more interesting back then. And and your suburban lifestyle, like, and you're kind of insulated. Like, what was the, what was yeah. the sensation there? Look, I was a kid growing up in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, and I remember going to Thornhill Library, which is the local library, and it was a Dewey Decimal System back then. Mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. I'm sure you remember that, but a lot of other people might not. But you know, I was really into the Choose Your Own Adventure books. I really liked the idea of having a big adventure. And I think that's true for especially a lot of young boys and kids. Like you want to have an adventure. You want to do something heroic. You want your life to be meaningful. And I looked around suburban St. Louis and I'm like, what's going on here? Like, this doesn't seem like King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. Like, what's the, you know, it's not the the Battle of Thermopylae, right? What is at just stake like a paper in our... <laughs> right. <laughs> You're trying to figure out where, where, where do I, where do I fit in? What's, and, and increasingly in our culture, I think this is a particular problem for men and for boys is that there's not a lot of direction to them about like, this is what your life is for. This is what your life is about. And so I remember as a kid reading all of these stories and kind of wishing that I'd been, you know, with Christopher Columbus trying to, to, you know, find the new world that you wanted to do something big. And, uh, so as a kid, I read all that stuff, and I did, as you as you mentioned, I had this kind of sense, like, was I born at the wrong time? Hmm. When you, I mean, I resonate with that. I mean, I when I was a kid, I, I lived on a ranch, and ranching is not, 
I don't know. It's it's funny because now I'm like, that was kind of cool. Right. Like, yeah, that was cool. He lived on a ranch. <laughs> but yeah. but back then I was like, ugh. Like I felt I felt like I'd met the same five people over and over again. And I, I was just like, I feel like there's so much out there that I'm I'm, I'm watching Star Wars on TV right. and then I go outside right. and there's like a squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like there's there's just there's an adventure waiting and I, I thought it was in the big city. I thought that was where the, you know, the urban right. jungle was, right. you know what I mean? Like that's where the action is happening. Like, cause like you, I really didn't think wars were know, real because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'd never seen one up close. Right. So I'm right. like, that's all just things people talked about in the olden days, right. you know? Right. And, um, it probably wasn't until I was in middle school that, we, you know, I think Gulf war was starting to kick off mm-hmm. the uh, Gulf war one, if memory serves. And, um, <clears throat> I'm like, oh, it's a real thing. Like these, these are actual things that happen right. in my lifetime. And yeah. I'm going to, maybe this, maybe I just haven't lived long enough. Yeah. And, uh, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was really interesting when I was reading that. Like, I wonder how many boys these days are just sitting there going, huh, the things kind of suck. Although now we're living interesting times again. <laughs> I, I think it's far, <laughs> far worse. And in, in the culture, it's much more debilitating for young men today in a thousand different ways than it was when we were growing up. But yeah, it's a very natural thing. I mean, you mentioned Star Wars, but that's also, keep in mind, that's what Luke Skywalker's thinking at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. He's like, I want to get off of this farm, right, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, right, there's Jawas and Han Solo shows up, right? <laughs> so but it's a very natural thing for young men to feel. It's also why in traditional cultures, you actually had ceremony that young men went through that helped them to understand what it meant to be a man. You actually went through ceremonies where, you know, if you're in Spartan culture, when you're seven years old, you left the women and you started working at, uh, you started working and living with men. If you were in medieval culture at seven, you could become a page. At 13, you could become a, a squire, right? Uh, in Judaism, at 13, you get bar mitzvahed. You become a man. So there, there had been in almost every traditional culture that you looked at, these very specific ages, especially for young boys. One marker was almost always around seven years old. Another was around 13. And then another came somewhere between 18 and 21 was when you had fully become a man in your culture. But the point is that at each demarcation, there were ceremonies that you went through in order to help you understand what it meant to be a man. We don't have that today. So one of the things I I actually did for my boys, as you know, I've got two boys, nine and seven years old. I actually inducted them into the ancient order of the pirate knights of Coyote Bear Cabin. Okay. Okay. So I created a ceremony for them one summer and they had 30 labors that they had to perform over the course of the summer at seven and nine. They had to learn, well, this was uh, when they were were seven and six in the summer, they had to learn uh, how to make a fire. They had to learn how to clean a wound and bandage it on their own. They had to learn the military alphabet. I dropped them off one mile from the house. They had to make it back on their own. They had to learn how to use a map, et cetera, et cetera. There are all these things that I made them learn how to do. And then at the end of the summer, there was a ceremony where they actually received an ax and they become pages in the ancient order of the pirate knights of Coyote Bear Cabin. So that was something that I created um, and obviously had a lot of input 
from other men in, in my life and from Poppy, their grandfather, who participated in this as well. But the point is all of those things are actually really important for young men so that they get a sense, okay, well, this is what it means to be a man. I, I learn how to use my strength in this way. I learn how to use my strength to be of service. I learn self-control. I learn discipline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, eventually you went on to become an academic sort of, I mean, you were, (laughs) and I think one of my favorite parts of that story was I, I was kind of half expecting you to say, well, this sucks. I'm out. Uh, cause you're like, school isn't for me. It's not going anywhere. And like, there isn't an adventure at the end of this rainbow. So screw it. I'm out. I got to go find my own adventure or something, but that's not what happened. You, uh, you're like, well, I guess it's academia. (laughs) And you actually went down the path. You actually became a road scholar. Like that's, that's not just like a little academia. That's like a whole other level. So what what was the thinking there? Well, you know, one of the things that was cool was that I was very fortunate. Before I went to college, I had never been outside of the United States of America. I'd just never been out of the country before. Uh, we went to the Holodome in Hannibal, Missouri. That was a big adventure. But but besides that, <laughs> we, we really, it's just, just not something that was part of my childhood. So I wanted to go overseas And my first trip overseas was actually a real adventure. Uh, I was very fortunate. I went to to Duke University. They had a program at Duke where if you were a freshman and you'd never been outside of the United States of America, you could apply for a grant to study something after your freshman year that was overseas. So I had a uncle who had once been to China on a trip to study something for a broom factory, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> that was that was the basis <laughs> for this thinking. And I thought, well, look, if I want to go somewhere, you put your finger on St. Louis, Missouri on one side of the globe. The other side of the globe is China. I thought, yeah. Let, let's go as far as we can go. Sure. So I put in a application to study joint ventures in political economy in China. Now, I want to remind everybody, this was 1993. It was a China that was much closer to Tiananmen Square than it is to the China that we think of today. This was a China when I went there where almost everyone was still riding bicycles around Beijing. And it was just at the beginning of when foreign companies were starting to invest and create joint ventures in China. So I went to study this and I ended up having an incredible adventure, which as you know, from having read the books, Mm -hmm. I ended up getting arrested in China for teaching. As one will. (laughs) As as, as can happen, getting arrested in China for teaching about the Constitution and human rights when I was 19 years old. So I ended up having this, this incredible adventure, as you know, <laughs> you know, later in college, where it's in Bosnia and Rwanda and Bolivia. So I was, I was very fortunate in that I found a way to both study and to study philosophy and questions about what, is it, what does it mean to live a, a meaningful life that I found really engaging and at the same time be engaged in practices, whether that was boxing in college or China, Bosnia, Rwanda, that felt very active to me at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned philosophy throughout, I think, really all of your books yeah. um, in some way or another. And, um, and, and it makes a lot of sense because you had that background in it. I remember when I was a kid, I, I kind of thought, philosophy was like this distant ancient thing I wouldn't have to think about. It's like, oh, some philosophers once upon a time had some thoughts about things. And a lot of it, to be fair, is kooky. Like it's way out there, you know, (laughs) it just is. I mean, like, like, and like spirits and, you know, and like weird 
particles that are like half fire and half water and like all kinds of crazy stuff. Right. So I think my perception of it was that's not, we've, we've come so far since then. And, and so therefore it's not something I need to learn as I become an adult and I'm kind of revisiting this old ancient knowledge and, you know, kind of looking at ranches like, Oh wow, that that's pretty cool to have lived on a ranch, not appreciating that all when I was a child. I think it's neat to see um, your writing in particular, but in general, this kind of, I don't know, reimagining or uh, resurgence of these old things that have just been sort of lost to time. Like we just don't talk about them. I don't remember a single time, any time in my between, uh, let's see, when I was born to maybe into my 30s that I heard anyone talking like longingly about philosophy in any way at all other than outside of academia, which I, you know, I had no interest in whatsoever. So like what, what, what do you think the role of in philosophy in just in general in society is? Well, so let's speak to that. And at the same time, let's talk about what happened to philosophy. Because what's really striking is when you study philosophy and you go back, there's a, a great book by Pierre Hadot called The Story of Philosophy, right? And uh, or, or his book is Philosophy as a Way of Life. Okay? And I'll come to the story of philosophy in a moment. But his book is Philosophy as a Way of Life. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all of these guys thought that all of the questions they were asking, what is wisdom? What is justice? How do you organize a republic? All of these questions were questions about how you should live and what it meant to live a good life. And if you think about that maxim that, that's over uh, the temple at Delphi, know thyself, the idea was by studying these questions, you're going to come to know yourself and you're going to come to know your place in the world. Mm -hmm. And philo, the love of, Sophie, wisdom, the idea was that you could learn to love wisdom and that there's all of this wisdom around you. And one of the things that's happened in our culture is exactly what you put your finger on, was that sometime, and it was a process that really started happening, I think, in the kind of 70s, 80s, 90s, philosophy became academic. And the idea was, well, who are philosophers? Well, those are people who are like in universities, they write in obscure journals that nobody reads. Even, even the other academics don't actually right. read them, okay? <laughs> and, and it seemed to be this totally obscure discipline. And it was a real shame. It was a real robbery. It was a taking away of all of that wisdom from the common culture. You know, I mentioned the story of philosophy. Uh, it was a series of books written by Will and Ariel Durant. I think it was in the 1970s or 80s. So millions of copies. Why? Because then in the United States of America, still 50 years ago, you had alive the idea that was the, actually part of the basis of the founding of the republic was that the republic was dependent upon self-educated citizens. This is why Benjamin Franklin created the public library in the United States of America. Let's remember that was an invention the public library. Before that, where were libraries? There were monasteries or a king might have it or it's a famous library of Alexandria. The royal court owned it. The idea was in the United States of America was that you could educate yourself. And, you know, my dad growing up read a lot of Eric Hoffer. A lot of people today aren't necessarily familiar with Eric Hoffer. Brilliant philosopher. I think he is the most brilliant street fighter philosopher in the history of the United States. Okay, self-educated guy who's written brilliantly. If you're going to start with one of his books, start with The True Believer. 
There's also an incredible book of essays called Between the Devil and the Dragon. Eric Hoffer, brilliant guy. But here's the point. My dad, who was a government accountant, read Eric Hoffer when he was out near the barbecue. When and, and he wasn't alone when Will and Ariel Durant wrote the story of philosophy. They sold millions of copies. Can you imagine today in the United States of America books about the story of philosophy selling millions of copies? No. And why? There's been this process by which the idea is told to so many men and so many women in this country that that's not for you. That's for these people in these fancy colleges and universities. But in fact, the wisdom is there for everybody, and it's part of our great cultural inheritance. And one of the things that I tried to do in the book, Resilience, where I'm writing a, letter, a series of letters to my buddy, uh, his name is Drew Sheets, and in, in the book at the time, we changed it to, to Zach Walker. He's happy for his name to be out there. Drew, okay. Drew's a great dude. So, so but you know, uh, he was a classic example, an incredibly smart guy, incredibly smart guy, who, because he wasn't academically focused, because he was a boy with a lot of energy, because he wasn't a kid who wanted to sit in class all day, was told that that, that kind of wisdom wasn't for him. And I remember in Buds, I gave him a copy of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays, and he devoured that book. He was so excited by all of the stuff that's here. Why? Because he wanted to learn what it meant to be a good life. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a warrior? What does it mean to be purposeful? And these questions are questions that have been being asked for centuries. And the, that inheritance, all of that wisdom, is actually should be there for all of us. But instead, today people get TikTok videos. They sure do. Um, and Facebook videos. Don't forget, <laughs> don't forget those. Um, well, I, I do want to talk about your book, but I think it, in context it might be good to talk about it more later, later yeah, on. We'll talk about it later. When, yeah. when you get into the SEALs, I think if sure, we're going to sure. do it a little bit more yeah. chronologically, it might make sense at that point. But um, So let's talk about your humanitarian stuff um, yeah. because I guess this actually kind of dovetails into the heart and the fist because it's funny because I, I read the book and then I understood the title. Like I got all the way through the book mm. and I'm like, Oh, that's what the title was all about. Like, so it starts with the heart and that's the human humanitarian side. <clears throat> so why don't you walk us through, um, how you kind of got involved in that and what that meant to you? Yeah. So I'd had this incredible experience in China, which we talked about where I realized, wow, things can be pretty different <laughs> outside the United States of America, right? Mm -hmm. This is not the Dairy Queen in St. Louis, Missouri. We're in a, we're working in a different <laughs> world here, all right? So, um, naivete at, uh, at 11. Right, right. <laughs> and, but I was very fortunate, right? I had this experience in China. And then I was invited along with a small group of other students to go in the summer of 1994 to live and work in refugee camps with Bosnian kids who were called unaccompanied at the time. Unaccompanied meaning that they may have been orphaned or they may have just been separated from their parents during all the violence and ethnic cleansing that was happening in Bosnia at the time. Now, you want to think about, it's, it's hard to really step into what it's like being in a refugee camp. Because mm -hmm. we see movies, you can read an article. If you think about in a refugee camp, everyone there has been a victim of violence. Many of them have lost close relatives. They've had wives and husbands and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children killed. They have, by definition, all of them lost their home. But the hardest thing isn't actually what happened to them. It's where they're at. So you're in this moment where you're living in a, if you're lucky, in a trailer, 
you're in something like a tent in a, in a refugee camp and you have no idea when this is going to end. Right. Maybe you've been there for years. There's no sense of direction. There's no sense of time. There's, there's, there's no sense of time in the sense that you know when this is going to end. And, and it might get worse. It very well <laughs> could get worse because things have been getting worse for a long time. And one of the things, I, there are a lot of lessons that came to me from that, but one of them, which I, I later ended up using, and we'll talk about it you know, maybe when we talk about working with veterans, was that the people who I saw who were struggling the worst were often the kids who were my age at the time, who were 19, 20, 21 years old. They felt like their life had just been cut off right when they were about to start. And here they are, tremendous anger. They're living in the refugee camp. It's unclear to them. How do, they, how do you do anything? How do you go to school? How do you start a business? How do you improve yourself? Incredibly hard environment. The people who are doing the best were oftentimes parents and grandparents who had really young kids. And the reason was, was that no matter what, they knew they had to wake up every day and be strong for someone else. One of the real lessons that I've taken from life is that no matter what happens, is, and there's tremendous amount of pain that comes everybody's way, tremendous amount of suffering that comes, comes your way in any life, when people have a why, when they have someone to be of service to, that provides a tremendous source of strength. And that was one of the things that I saw in that, in that refugee camp uh, in Bosnia when I was 20 years old. I can't remember which camp it was, but I remember you describing, I think it was quite a bit later. <clears throat> there was like a group of women who were kind of like eyeballing you and kind of sizing you up and you kind of had a, I don't know, charm them in a different language in a way it's, and I, I could feel how uncomfortable you were when you were writing those words. Like, woof. it's not like these people were a real threat to you or anything, but the amount of, you know, incredulity or whatever, you know, like, like, what the fuck are you doing here, kid? You're like, like you just came off your high horse to come down and help us. Like, who the hell are you kind right. of thing? Right. And so it's, so it's, it's not even like you're, you're getting the benefit of the doubt. Like I'm here to help. It's like, Oh great. Helps here. You know, it's like, who the fuck are you? And like, you're going to be gone in a month anyway. Like, right. You're not right. You're, you're useless here. What are you doing? Yeah. And let's also, let's also keep in mind, this is one of the things that I wrote about in my, ultimately I wrote my dissertation on how international humanitarian organizations work with kids in war zones. Sometimes, and this is as true overseas as it is at home, sometimes people with really good and really pure intentions can actually do harm if you don't do your work thoughtfully. Right? We see, we see this at home, like just giving people stuff does not normally help them a lot. If you want, if you really love somebody and you really care about them, you really have to pay attention to what's actually working in their, in their lives. So not only was there maybe some, you know, skepticism, but it's also well-founded skepticism because a lot of times people who are coming in and there's, you know, people who've done studies on this, right? There's so many examples and I can talk about one of them from, from Rwanda. But for example, it's very popular to send food aid into places, right? Well, what happens when you dump, you know, tens of millions of dollars of food aid on a place? Well, obviously it destroys the local economy and sends all the local farmers out of business because now nobody's paying mm -hmm. to buy their food. So unless you're really thoughtful about how you help, uh, you can actually do some harm. Amazing. <clears throat> yeah, I remember you mentioned at some points so the sort of the difference between just dropping, you know, pallets of cash versus, you know, helping build buildings or schools or 
or I think maybe one of the examples you brought was uh, pay for uh, teachers to teach. Actually investing in people. Mm -hmm. If you really want to help, the best investment that you can make is in people. How are you actually helping them to become smarter, stronger, better? One of the things that I saw that happened in, in Rwanda so you remember after the genocide in Rwanda, it was a massive refugee camp in Goma, Zaire. So you think about this 1.2 million refugees living in what is essentially a volcanic plain in Goma, Zaire. This is a classic example of what happened. It's a complex situation. Well, the international community agreed, well, let's help kids. Now, um, so what they started doing was they started setting up centers for unaccompanied and orphaned children. What happens? They send in food, they send in clothing, they send in shelter, they have activities. All of this for kids who are, quote, orphaned. Well, you're in this incredibly difficult situation in the refugee camp, and a lot of people are taking care of their kids. They might be taking care of a neighbor's kids. They might be taking care of a, a friend's kids or their brother's or sister's kids. And they've got six or seven kids, and then they look at, well, at this place, if you claim to be orphaned, you get all this stuff. So they <laughs> send some of their kids to the camp. Well, UNICEF ended up producing these numbers that said something like out of 1.2 million refugees that there were hundreds of thousands of unaccompanied children. Now, I had looked back as part of my dissertation and looked at the history of warfare and unaccompanied children. It is incredibly rare that young kids actually end up completely on their own. Right. Why? Because you know this, if, if something happened to you, Right? Yeah. then somebody would step in and help and take care of your the, kids. The neighbor, the, the, at least. <laughs> it's very, very rare. Yeah. It is very rare that kids are completely on their own. Right. But the international humanitarian community, again, perhaps with great intentions, had set up this system which actually incentivized parents to send their kids away and put them into a center for unaccompanied children where... You know, so who's who and then who's drawn to work with kids in a center like that? Well, sometimes incredibly humanitarian, well-intentioned people. And you also get pedophiles and you also get people who want to farm these kids out to foster them out in um, in the camp to, to work. And kids are taken advantage of kids are abused. So that was just one example that I saw of how if you really want to help people, if you really care about them, you have to think about really investing in them. Because what ended up turning that situation around, what got the kids out of the camp, was when the aid organizations actually went to the families and said, what do you need to take care of your kid? Oh, you need a tarp. Oh, you need a cooking kettle. Oh, you need this. And then actually supporting them so that they could take care of their own children. Mm -hmm. um, and that lesson, unfortunately, continues to repeat it over and over and over again in, um, in lots of areas of life. So, okay, so what would you... <clears throat> well, looking back in your own time there, yeah. do you think what the missions that you were attached to were doing anything positive or was it, or I was think, it a wash? Or? I, think, I think for sure um, I, had, I had a great mentor who was leading this work uh, in Rwanda and Goma Zaire, and he was the guy who was essentially turning that situation around, mm -hmm. getting kids back out of these centers for un unaccompanied children and getting them back to their families and their caretakers. I think that was really uh, and how did you and how did you get started on that path? I mean, what was the what was the light bulb going on? Well, one of, one of the things. So so the light bulb. Just to be clear, like. 
the light bulb was other people, right? This was not me walking in seeing this sure. immediately as, as a 21-year-old kid. Yeah, of course. But, um, but I walked in, and there were some other people who'd seen it. And what you saw is that, like, once you figured it out, it was one of those things, like, once you see it, it becomes pretty obvious, right? It's actually, like, not that hard to interrogate a 7-year-old, okay? <laughs> so they, 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 they walk into the Center for Unaccompanied Children, and they say, Just tie oh. Tie up and they, start no, waterboarding them. No, no. <laughs> the, the, you know, the kid, says, the kid says, oh, I'm, I'm orphaned. I need to stay here. And then the person who's there says, oh, I'm very sorry that that happened. Where's your mother now? And they say, oh, well, she's waiting for me outside to make sure that I get in. Okay, well, well then, and then somebody goes outside and actually talks to the mom and says, listen, you don't need to send them here. If you need help and support, right, there's help and support that is available for you. And you can actually keep your own kids, which is what which is what's best for them and best for everybody. Yeah, understood. Yeah, I as I was reading that section, I'm like, geez, I just wonder how many of these missions have just ended in catastrophe over the long, I mean, not maybe at that moment, maybe they are giving some help at the, at the moment, but, but eventually they pull funding and are they really leaving a vacuum? Are they, are they leaving these people better off than, than when they found them? Are they leaving them in a situation where now they don't have farmers, as you said? I mean, there's all yeah, kinds you of, you have to take, if you're gonna, and this is true in any human situation, it's true if you're talking to a buddy who is on the verge of suicide. It's true if you're trying to alleviate poverty here at home. It's true if you're working in an international humanitarian situation abroad. Any situation where human beings are in a desperate condition, you have to be very thoughtful and very clear about how you're going to help. And it is not good to simply assume that your good intentions are going to make things better. In fact, what you really need to do is ask yourself, what's really going to help this person? What has helped other people in similar situations? What is proven to work? We have lots of evidence around that, but a lot of times people want to just assume that because they've got good intentions, they're going to be helpful. And sometimes, in fact, when people in desperate situations, you do the wrong thing and you can actually hurt somebody who's in a desperate situation, which is not what anybody wants to do. Right. So another thing that you did um, later on, but I, I think it might be useful to tie it in right here, um, is the uh, Mission Continues um, um, nonprofit, mm-hmm. 5013C, I think. Um, so once you talk about that, I realize we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I think it's useful to talk about in this humanitarian, um, yeah. landscape. Yeah. Well, look, the humanitarian lessons, you're exactly right. Informed a lot of the work that I ended up doing here at home with wounded and disabled veterans. So maybe first I'll just do the very quick backstory sure. of, of the mission continues from how that emerged from my service in Iraq and then, and then how, how we use the lessons. So, um, I think it was March 27th, 2008, I was on a patrol, um, in Fallujah. It was me, some U.S. Marines, Iraqi Army, and fairly fairly eventful patrol. But uh, the point is we came home, we slept that night. The next morning, I think it was March 28th, we woke up to what is called in the military a complex attack. Complex meaning there's more than one thing happening, okay? You got, you got um, artillery that's being dropped, mortar rounds being dropped on your position, you got small arms fire, and what also happened was that multiple suicide truck bombs were coming in to attack our position in Fallujah. One of those went off right outside of the building where I had been sleeping. 
And what they were doing at the time is that they were loading the suicide car bombs and truck bombs with chlorine. And the intention was both to kill people with the explosion and then also to create injuries and casualties with the chlorine. <clears throat> when the suicide truck bomb went off, I made it out the other side of the building along with some other guys. And when I did, I, I kind of got down, I fell down, I was on my hands and knees just kind of coughing and choking and spitting uh, all of the chlorine out. And I also saw that I had blood on my uniform. And one of the things that we're trained to know is that, and, and you and many of your listeners know, is that a lot of times a surge of adrenaline will actually mask the pain of an injury. You can be really injured and not feel it. But I look down, you see this blood, like, okay, there's something going on. So I'm checking and checking and checking myself. And eventually, I realized uh, it's not my blood. Uh, it was the blood of my buddy, Joel, who was just a couple feet uh, away from me. So... I um, grabbed my rifle. I went to the top of the building uh, that morning to uh, provide cover while uh, the Kazavak came in and actually got the rest of the guys out to the Fallujah Surgical Hospital. Eventually, the corpsman comes to me and is like, hey, sir, you need to go. You need to go, too. So um, I was in the last Humvee to go to the, to the hospital before I left. I turned to this guy, Travis Mannion, who was a, a Marine who had been the first guy to come to help me, who was on the top of the roof that day. So I said to Travis, I'm like, hey, man, you got it? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got your back, sir. And so I, I, I ran down, jumped in the Humvee, went to the hospital. Now, a couple of threads of the story, you know, one of them is that that was the last thing I ever heard from Travis Mannion because uh, he ended up giving his life a couple of days later to defend his fellow Marines um, in, in Iraq. But and my buddy Joel was very fortunate that he uh, had a severe injury, head injury. He was flown back to the United States, uh, but he survived and he was able to continue serving in the United States Marine Corps. Joel had a hilarious <laughs> sense of humor. I just one quick aside. I remember uh, he told me he's like, "Yeah, I'm meeting with all these doctors, and they're trying to they're trying to figure out if I have P PTSD or if I'm crazy." He said the problem is I was crazy before they hit me with the suicide truck bomb, so they don't know what the baseline is here. So, uh, but anyway, great, great dude. So, so but the, but the point is, I come home right, and I meet with Joel. I, I see Travis's family, and I also went to Bethesda to the Naval Hospital to visit with some recently returned wounded and disabled Marines and sailors and they actually had some soldiers and airmen at Bethesda as well. And you talk with these young men and women and you ask them, what do you want to do when you recover? And they all say to you, I want to go back to my unit. Mm. That's now, not going to happen for a lot of those guys. Yeah. The harsh reality was a lot of those dudes were not going to go back to their unit. Right. One guy lost the arm. Another dude had a bullet through the neck. Like they're not going back to their unit. But what I saw was happening very similar to what happened in the refugee camps. You think about this. Okay, you're a 25-year-old sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. You're in Afghanistan. You have the flag of the uniform. Uh, you have the flag of the United States on your uniform. You got your crew. You have a mission. You've got a sense of purpose. You know what you are doing every single day. And then, bang, you're injured and you're waking up. And all of a sudden, people are treating you like a charity case. Mm -hmm. Hey, do you want some free baseball tickets? You want a free blanket? Want some free movie tickets? You want, you want a free fly fishing trip, right? Now, again, really well-intentioned, but what is the message? The message is, okay, you did all this stuff, you got injured, and now you're a charity case. Well, that leads to the most significant injury, and the most significant injury that anybody ever receives in their life is that they feel purposeless. And that leads to depression. Mm -hmm. That leads to people using drugs. 
That leads to people using alcohol. So what I saw there in Bethesda, and again, thank, thankfully for the lesson from the refugee camps about the parents and grandparents waking up, I said, like, these guys need a purpose. And by the way, they still have so much to offer. Maybe even more. Because not only have they served, not only have they done, they done this heroic work, but now they've come back and they're going to recover. So we started and, and at the mission. Have, and they have perspective. Yeah, and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they learned something about themselves, and it's a hard lesson. Yeah. yeah. And so we put them to work at places like Habitat for Humanity, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boys and Girls Clubs. And you know what? All of a sudden, when somebody wakes up and they feel like they've got other people counting on them, you know what? Then they're going to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and it is a lesson that is essential and important for every human being. You know, if you permit me, like one, one aside, like one of the things that you often find, <laughs> for example, is that. Uh, one of the key markers in a, a life where people will stop using doing something that's bad for them, like smoking, right? They'll stop when they have a kid. Why? Because they realize, okay, I got, I got to do something. I got to fix this because I got to be there mm-hmm. for my it's, kid. It's for them. It's not for themselves. It's for them, not for themselves. So, so what does that tell you, though? It also tells you that they need to love and believe in themselves, Okay. And one of the things that happens, though, it's a beautiful thing that can happen in a, in a human life, is that when you start realizing that you have something to offer the world, then you start to believe in yourself again. Mm-hmm. So these dudes who might have lost a limb, lost eyesight, lost hearing, had traumatic brain injury, they didn't feel like they could still be of service. They would start stop believing in themselves. And that's why, you know, you ask yourself, like, like why, why are people, you know, why, why do people commit suicide? Why do they spend an entire day inside their house watching TV? Right? Why are people destroying themselves? Well, they don't, they don't believe in themselves. They don't believe that they have something to offer. What we offered them was not charity, but a way to rebuild that sense of purpose. Now, we couldn't do it for them, but by, by creating that path for them to go out and start to serve again, they could start to believe in themselves. And then, you know what? They do that and like, you know what? I'm going to go back to college. You know what? I'm going to actually get in shape. I'm going to do this because I've got other people who are counting on me. Are there any like really good stories from that time? Oh, dude, there are like thousands. <laughs> oh, really? I'll, I'll tell you one that just because it's on my mind, because sure. literally I, I was, I had the dude over to my house two weeks ago. It's a guy named Tim Smith. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm in Missouri. Tim Smith was our first Missouri veteran from the mission continues. All right. And Tim had, uh, had served in Iraq, you know, debilitating PTSD, had all of these friends who were killed, et cetera, et cetera. Like you've heard this story many times. He also, as a kid, had been at a boys and girls club where uh, he really learned how to play basketball and he was a good basketball player. And that had kind of been his path out and into the military. So we had Tim do a fellowship at the boys and girls club. As he's there at the Boys and Girls Club, he's rebuilding that sense of purpose. He's feeling really good about himself. And then he's like, wow, this is amazing. I actually want to use this to help some of my fellow veterans. So we got him a fellowship at the VA where he started working with other veterans. That led him to getting a job at the VA. And then after he had the job at the VA, he's like, you know what? This is cool in the government, but I want to do something in the private sector. He started his own cleaning company own janitorial service company called Patriot Commercial Cleaning, Mm. where he hires exclusively, he only hires other veterans and their families. That's great. And now he has, I don't know, it's like 50 employees in the state of Missouri. Then he started a veteran roofing company, okay? And now his kids, his kids who saw him 
who saw him at the depths, okay? And this is a guy, again, PTSD. He had lung cancer from being around burn pits and all that stuff. So you don't think about, like, excuses and hardship right. and all right. this stuff. Okay, but now his kids, one of whom is now graduating from high school, what does he want to do? He actually wants to start his own business. He's seeing what his dad has done with his life. He's so proud of it. He wants to follow in his path. That's great. And there are hundreds of stories like that because, again, it's, it's very simple. And, again, this is all, to go back to what we're talking about with philosophy, it's all there. It's all the same stuff, mm -hmm. right? You can read Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Lao Tzu, Mencius, Confucius, about how you actually create a sense of purpose in your life and how important it is. And today, instead of getting that kind of wisdom, people are being mainlined all of these lies and poison from the mainstream media, much of which is actually purposefully designed to make you sick, purposefully designed to make you depressed, purposefully designed to make you weak. So <clears throat> I'd like to talk about your photos for a second because I think sure. it's relevant to this particular conversation. Um, this is a, I'm going to kind of butcher a, a, a short little quip of what this is, but it's it's basically a, a picture album slash, I would, I would almost like to call it poetry, but it's not. It, they're short essays, I would right. say, on your time in, in four or five different, re maybe five, six different regions. Um but the reason I bring it up in this context is um, there was one picture that really just got burned into my brain the mm. second I saw mm. it, um, which is a picture. It was in Gaza of a kid. And in the background, there's a uh, what's called a sawastika, not a swastika. It's the opposite. It's mm. turned the opposite direction. And <clears throat> that, that said so much to me in one photo. It's like, well, first of all, uh, there's a lot of ignorance about what a swastika is. <laughs> but secondly, um, here's a kid who is totally innocent and has no idea what's going on. And, you know, it's, I couldn't tell exactly how old he is, call him four or five or something. Um, but around a culture that really doesn't have a lot of options, don't they really don't have like this a deep philosophical, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. They don't have the same sort of options that you might have even just a few miles away mm -hmm. um, in, in Jerusalem, let's say. So when you look at kids like that um, in those places, like what, I mean, what do we do? How do we help bring them that sort of, because it, I can see myself, you know, being that age and looking up and seeing these from our perspective, terrorists, right. Um, and, but they're like my uncle or whatever. And I'm like, oh, my uncle is such a badass. He's going out there and doing stuff. And and it's a, it's some kind of mission. So it's just a cycle at that point. There's no there's no end to that cycle because you're not giving them another option to look up to another better cause, another better way to live. So like, how do you how do you think about that? Well, first of all, it, this is one of those those problems, which is incredibly complex. Right? And I'm going to make first a, a philosophical point about the difference between complicated problems and complex problems. And then I'll come back and talk about practically like what we can do. Sure. Uh, so first of all, like one of the things that's also valuable about philosophy is that it lets you think about the questions you're asking, mm -hmm. right? 
And, you know, Aristotle makes this distinction between what I would call complicated and complex problems. A complicated problem can be a problem that's incredibly difficult to solve, but once solved, remains solved, right? So how do you build a skyscraper with uh, plumbing and electricity and make sure that it, it, it stands and, and the elevators work? That's an incredibly complex problem. How do you build a jet engine that's going to actually fly? It's an incredibly complex problem. But once it's solved, it remains solved. It's not like the dudes who build jet engines are waking up and like, man, what do we do today? <laughs> how are we going to build it? Like, you know how to build uh, the engine. Complex problems, which most human problems are, change as you solve them. As you take action on the problem, it actually changes. So... And then the classic example of this is in sports, right? So you're like, well, what is the right pitch to throw? Well, I mean, okay, a fastball works, but now you need to throw a curveball. And now you need to throw a change. But the answer is not always the fastball. You can't always run the same play. Why? Because the defense or the hitter is going to change. You know, it's not like in boxing, which is the right punch to throw. Right? <laughs> there, there is no answer to that question. <laughs> it's all dependent upon the context that you're seeing. And in the same way, in the same way, when you're talking about a lot of these complex situations, there's not always a simple answer. It's not a complicated problem like, okay, well, every time we see kids like this in Gaza or, you know, as in the other book, like working with kids in Cambodia who lost them to landmines or working with kids in one of Mother Trace's homes for the destitute and dying. Uh, all of these situations are complex problems. And just like if you're going to help a buddy who's having a hard situation with his teenage son, like you got to listen. And this is why we have to develop what the Greeks called as phronesis, as practical wisdom, right? It's not mathematical knowledge. It's not knowledge like even like a knowledge in a chessboard, right? What you're really trying to do is, is to figure out how do you have practical wisdom, which is the wisdom to figure out not what's the right thing to do, because sometimes it's not like an exact right answer, but what are the, some of the best things that I might do as a human being in this situation? And what I would say in general with most of these things is that the best thing you can do, the best thing you can actually do is look at yourself. And you ask yourself, how do I get better? Because sometimes it's a cop-out. All right, how am I going to help these kids like half a globe away? Sure. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe, <laughs> but maybe you should also think about, right, right here at home, right, you talk about kids growing up in an environment where they don't have a chance, right? Right here at home, you have all these boys growing up in a culture that tells them that masculinity is toxic. Mm -hmm. Right. We have a culture where like they will lie and tell vicious lies about men, right? Simply because they didn't like follow the rules of the establishment. So what do you have to do? What can you do? Look at yourself. Yeah, so what can I do in my life? How can I be an example? How can I be of service? Well, I have Eric Reitens on my show is how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Thank one, you. Thank you one of many, one of many things I do, but um, so any, any comments on the current conflict since we're, I think this will come out in three weeks. So don't make it too, too, uh, too on the nose if you have any uh, feelings on the topic, but just in general, I would say. No, I don't think, I always like talking about things where I feel like I can add specific value. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the last time I was in Gaza, that was in 1998. Mm -hmm. It was literally a quarter century ago, mm -hmm. right? And it was, it was very, very helpful and eye-opening at the time to actually walk the streets 
of Gaza. But I would say, you know, in the military, we said that that's old intel. <laughs> that's old intel. That was that was when Yasser Arafat yeah. was kind of running the running the show. Yeah, you know, I I know that to be true. I get right. it. I totally understand. But I'm always curious because you know I've never been to Gaza. You know, I've mm-hmm. never spent right. any time on the ground right. there. So there's right. sometimes there's like, well, here's the way this group tends to think about the problem, like. I've heard some scary stats and I'm not going to repeat them because I, I can't remember them exactly, but it was something like a, a multi digit IQ difference between people in Gaza and like the Ashkenazi Jews, which are just a few miles away. And if that's indeed the case, and I'm not saying it is, that's just the stat I saw. Um, so who knows, but, but it, let's say it was for a second. It's very hard to have some a conversation with somebody who's not thinking at all on the same plane that you are. And so um, you know, some of that might be, you know, lack of food or food insecurity problems. Some of it might be health issues. Some might be inbreeding. Who knows, right? Who knows what what the actual cause would be of something that drastic? That the numbers are crazy. Um, but it it seems like direct diplomacy in the way that you know, like two Western countries would have diplomacy, just probably won't work because it's a different conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, look, a couple thousand years of conflict would suggest that, that <laughs> chatting over tea is not is not going to resolve this one right away. But but it actually it actually raises again. I'm going to make kind of a, a general point because I think sure. it's it's really important as as your listeners are thinking about well, how do I take like this lesson and actually apply it to my own life? One of the things that you find is that a lot of times people assume that a conversation is going to lead people to understanding. And actually, there's a lot of evidence that it doesn't. There's a lot of times that people sit down and they talk and like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I really don't like that person. Yep, and, and we really are different. Yep, and we really do. Like, let's, let's go fight, okay? One of the things that I did, again, at The Mission Continues was we had this big divide in the country, and it, gosh, it feels like ancient history now, between veterans and non-veterans. Okay. It was such a small percentage of the country that actually went over to Afghanistan that actually went to Iraq. And you had all of these people who like kind of cared about it. And they were patriotic Americans, maybe, but they literally never had dinner with a veteran. Well, rather than like sitting people down face to face to just talk, one of the things that we did was we did community service projects and we'd have people work together. And this, this is especially true for guys. Okay. If you want guys to like really come to understand each other, Give them something to do together. Make them actually go work together on a project and they will come and understand each other better and emerge with respect and common understanding, et cetera, et cetera. You want to you get the people working together. So we would bring hundreds of people together and we'd do these big projects where we'd transform, uh, say, a park. And we'd build, uh, build picnic benches and do landscaping and do painting and build up a baseball field. And we just brought hundreds of people in because what happened was then the guy who's lost a leg in Iraq is working next to the guy who's, you know, managing a shop in Tulsa. And at the end of the day, they realize, you know, that they don't have as much um, dividing them as they might have thought. You kind of bridge what we called at, at the time the civil military divide. And so, but there's even a, a within military divide. I mean, there's the people who've been in combat and the people who haven't. And if yes, if and you there's, haven't there's been army in combat, versus navy, well, right? Sure, right. Well, sure, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, 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 but that's that's yes. more like friendly <laughs> ribbing, <laughs> right? Right. But right. but if but I but I have seen conversations that are like, well, have you been in combat? It's like, no, I was never deployed. And right. Like, 
okay, kid, you know, right. it's, it's, it, they're very treated. And there's also a difference between vets and people who are active. Right. Uh, I remember conversations with a, a vet, a fr- old friend of mine, and he's like, yeah, I, you know, like I flew in on this, I was on this battleship, but I was, he was no longer in the military, mm-hmm. flew in and he was meeting people and, you know, these, I, I think there were Marines came off, you know, some combat mission or something and they're all fucked up and everything. And he wanted to like shake their hands and like sort of the commanding officer sort of like shake everyone's hand, you know? And they're just like, who the fuck is this guy? He's like, I'm a vet. I was, I was one of you like a couple of years ago. Right. Like, right. Nope. Yeah. Dude, we are exhausted. We want to chow and sleep. Right. And yeah. Who the fuck yeah. are you? Right. All right, so let's talk a little bit about um, some of the martial arts and stuff you did, like yeah. boxing and taekwondo, and, and you mentioned one that I didn't catch. Uh, hojutsu. Hojutsu. The art of shooting, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. I've never heard of. Um, you think I would have, actually. And then um, also, you do like a lot of running now. Um, yeah. Which yeah. is not in your books, but um, you do like high Track level. Track and field. High yeah. level running. Yeah. Like, yeah. So what, what got you kind of down that path? So I had been, uh, you know, as a kid, I played sports, right? Played baseball, played soccer in high school, kind of stuff. And But I had always wanted, like I wanted, you know, like I was saying, like I wanted to do intense stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And my uh, maternal grandfather had grown up boxing in Chicago during the Depression. And he later served in World War II in, in the Army. And... Um, so I kind of always had this interest in boxing, but as a kid, I was never going to be allowed to box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went off to college, and one of the things that I did, uh, this was back in the days of Yellow Pages, right? I looked up the uh, if there was a Durham boxing gym, and I ended up, long story short, training in the Durham boxing gym every night my sophomore, junior, and senior year. So I ended up having this really cool education at Duke where I'd be you know, studying uh, Aristotle or reading Milton during the day. And then in the afternoon, I went down to this gym. I'm the only white guy, the only college student and built tremendous friendships and relationships with my trainer, training partners, and obviously other dudes, uh, who were, who were in the gym. And that was kind of my like introduction to combat sports. Now I was very, and and there in in North Carolina, I just did some, some minor golden glove stuff. (laughs) But, but uh, wait, one, one quick point about that. Yes. You, you're, I can't, I think his name's Earl. Earl. Yeah. 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 Um, there was this one quote that I just, I just, I actually had to stop the, like I was listening to audio. I had to stop it and just start laughing. Uh, cause it was something like, like, uh, like you were running around the track who's making you run around the track a whole bunch. And so he would run like back and forth and back and right. forth. Except for if there was a pretty girl around, and then he would stop and get totally derailed, and then and then. But we kept running, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then, but then, yeah, you kept running. But but the best quote was something like, um, "They made the mistake of thinking that he was uh, like innocent or benign." Thinking he was harmless because yeah, you were in his mid sixties, <laughs> and here comes Earl. I remember he had his he had his real men pray hat on, and he had this thing. He, he as a kid they used to call him Bebop. He had this walk which he still had in his sixties, and he's just kind kind of bopping and he walk up and just just start chatting, yeah. just start chatting, right? And uh, it sounds like he was pretty impactful. Oh man, oh man. I mean, you think about people who really changed the course of your life. Mm-hmm. Earl Blair like really changed the course of my life. And it's one of those relationships 
where the lessons sink in so deep that they're in your marrow, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're just like, they become part of you. And I was so fortunate to spend literally every uh, early afternoon and early or, or late afternoon and early evening of my life in college there in this, in this boxing gym, learning from, learning from Earl. It was really incredible. Mm. So you eventually went on to um, do martial arts, like traditional martial arts, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, so I was fortunate when I went to Oxford, it turned out. So Oxford actually had a boxing team. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. right? So, so, so at Oxford, um, they had a boxing team. In England at the time, I, I don't know what, what the case is now, but in England at the time, it was still very much a case that a lot of kids in their, in their they called them public schools, especially in their private schools, actually boxed as a high school activity. And there was every year there was an Oxford versus Cambridge boxing match where thousands of people would come out. Uh, best moments, best nights of my life were fighting in that Oxford-Cambridge match. And uh, they had a, a BUSA. BUSA is the British University Sports Association. It's kind of like the American NCAA. So they had a BUSA national championship. And my very small claim to extraordinarily minor boxing game was that I was a national champion in, uh, in, in the BUSA, mm-hmm. um, a national championship. So I was able to take everything that Earl had taught me and then actually use it, uh, overseas for, for Oxford. And it was fun. Yeah. And, and, uh, I remember reading at some point, something like, uh, a lot of those guys want to have like a three martini lunch and kind of show up late and they're like completely, not completely no discipline, but I mean, not Earl discipline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, what the reason why when I was there, Oxford was on, I believe I, I was years 12 and 13. It was like a 12 or 13 year winning streak. The reason was really simple. We had a coach, his name was Henry Dean. And he, he coached in the afternoons and we I did all of our boxing stuff, but so did Cambridge. The difference was, I think it was every Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday morning, we showed up at this place called Headington Hill. And we ran a vicious set of hills. The first hill was probably four and a half minutes. And then the next hill was like five and a half minutes. And then we came inside. I still remember the workout to this day. And then we ran three, basically two and a half to three minute loops of hills. Then we had another 12, very 12 to 15 short, intense sprints. And we're competing against everybody else on the team in every single one of those sprints. And what it ended up being the difference was, you know, uh, your listeners might know, amateur boxing tends to be three rounds, okay? So it's a three-round fight. And we were not necessarily the most skilled or the best boxers, but guaranteed we're in the best shape. Mm -hmm. Better cardio. Better better cardio. And when it really comes down, people also don't realize, like, how exhausting it is to box, Mm -hmm. Especially when you're getting hit, okay? People <laughs> like, like they work out is one thing, and then like they put on the gloves, they hit the heavy band, like oh wow, this is really hard, right? And you do that for two minutes, that's really hard. You do that for two minutes while someone else is actually punching you <laughs> in the stomach, and that it's pretty exhausting, right? So it's an incredibly exhausting sport, incredibly demanding, and also you're missing a lot of shots too. So it's not right? like you're actually hitting a bag; you're just swinging and missing you're, a lot you, of times. You, you might be swinging, you yeah. might be missing, you might be missing, and then getting hit like this is it is it is a it is a brutal violent difficult hard demanding sport and we simply had more in the tank 
And what Henry Dean would say, every day when we were out there, he would slip it in at some point. This is when you were bent over sucking air, right? <laughs> After the second of the three-minute sprint, and you got to do another one, and then there's another 12 that's going to come. And he would just say, Cambridge is sleeping right now. We won both of those years. There, there were nine fights total um, in, in, the, in, the, in the weight classes. Both of those years, we won five to four. That was the difference. Guaranteed, Headington Hill was the difference. Right. Interesting. So th th I think this brings us uh, to somewhere in the heart and the fist. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly where we are, but um, where you you somehow decided instead of going down the corp, like you could have, right? You're, you're a road Scholar. You could just go down the, the boring old corporate consultant. You could have been a... Deloitte and Touche or KPMG or something on Booz Allen, you would have been made plenty of money and done fine for yourself. And I think that would have been anyone's expectation of you, you know, like go, go do the normal nine to five, wear a suit and a tie and you'll make tons of money. Right. Yeah. I was, I was, so I was, why, I, was, why I, was I, I was 26. <laughs> well, so I actually did the, um, as I was finishing my PhD one summer, I actually did uh, 12 or 13 weeks with McKinsey and Company there you go. in London. <laughs> and it was a cool assignment. I actually worked for the British Ministry of Defense. Okay, so yeah, I'm finishing. I'm a Rhodes Scholar with a PhD, and they offered me an insane amount of money to come and, and work there. And it's cool. You get to live in London. You get to do interesting projects. And it would have been... You know, I, I can't remember exactly what it was at the time, but the amount of money they were offering me at 26 was some massive multiple of how much my dad had made every year. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, seven, ten times his annual salary right. in, in, one, in one year. And I was very fortunate because of the experiences that I'd had boxing, because of the experiences I had in the refugee camps, because of the experiences that, that I, I had had. As that kid in Thornhill Library thinking like, man... I don't know how many chances we got here. Like we got one life. And I knew enough even then, you know, I, I was, I was a, an old man for the military cause I was 26. Right. But <laughs> young man now, but I knew, <laughs> I knew enough to know I did not want to regret not joining. And so, yeah, I made this decision at, uh, at 26 that I was going to take all of that stuff and, you know, not throw it away, but bank it, right? Sure. Bank it and go and uh, join the U.S. Navy and go to officer <laughs> candidate school. And <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I have to know a little bit about the recruitment process because you're not like the normal dude walking in on the street at all. Like right. this is just not what you typically see. So were they just like... Were they are like, are you sure you're in the right place or what? <laughs> like, what was their reaction? Like, well, you know, I, so, so I'm, I'm obviously in Oxford, like there are no U S military recruiters right, there. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure, so yeah. I reached out, you know, via, I, I don't know if it was like the early website. I can't remember exactly, but I reached out to somebody and it turned out that actually there were two Navy SEALs stationed in London. Turned out to be great dudes. One of whom is still a good friend who I'm, I'm in touch with. So I went down to these guys and I said, hey, this is what I want to do. And they were very generous with their time. And they gave me, you know, 
uh, applying to be a Navy SEAL then, I don't know what it's like now, it was, was essentially like applying to college. Like, here's your transcripts and here's your activities and here's whatever. And like, you got to swim 500 yards and you got to run a mile and a half in boots and pants and do push ups and pull ups. So they administered all of those tests and did my officer interviews. And, right, and right there in, in London. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. I came down to London. I actually, I think it was in Hyde Park. I did my, I did my run. Um, and uh, they had me doing the swim and, you know, some little community pool. And they're, they're really kind uh, to me, very grateful to them still to this day. And they put everything together for me. And then, uh, and then I put in the application. But weren't they like, what the fuck are you doing here? Oh, yeah. Everyone was, Robert. Everyone. <laughs> literally everyone. I was like, no, what are you doing again? <laughs> why? What, 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 why are you doing this? Like, you could, you could be doing this other thing here. Yeah. But why are you doing this? And I think that there were a couple of, of reasons. I mean, one was that one of the conclusions I had also come to doing the humanitarian work was that if you really cared about people, not only did you need to bring the kind of intelligence and energy we we're talking about, but you also have to be willing to protect them. And this is one of the, this is one of the great jobs of the warrior. Right? You think about World War II. What brought World War II to an end? It wasn't humanitarian work. It was people with guns who were willing to put it to an end. What brought the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia to an end? People with guns who were willing to put it to an end. What brought the genocide in Rwanda to an end? People with guns who were willing to put it to an end. And you realize, like, if you really want to help people, you also have to be willing to protect them. You got to be willing to be strong for them. So that was kind of, you know, that, that I learned that philosophically. Plus, I was 26. I think at the time, the age cutoff was like 27 or 28. And I still had a 17-year-old desire to jump out of planes and blow things up and do all of those, you know, do all of those cool things. As I said, my, uh, both of my grandfathers had served during World War II. I think I had this sense that this was an important thing for a man to do in his life. So all of those things kind of led me down that path. And then I was particularly interested in the SEAL teams because uh, the train, and I felt like, look, if I'm going to do this, like, let's, let's do it. And the SEAL team training had a reputation for being the hardest military training in the world. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, well, let's, let's do that one. Let's, <laughs> let's sign up. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure you get this question all the time, so I don't want to belabor it too much because you said yeah. it probably in a thousand forums and whatever, but, um, was it the hardest training? I mean, did you, how hard was it? Oh like, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's legit. It's legit. It, it is, it is incredibly hard training. Uh-huh incredibly hard train. There's a reason why it has that reputation. I think it is a well-deserved reputation. I mean, in our class, we started with over 220 people and we graduated with uh, like 20 something originals. So one out of 10. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's no, is that, and, and that seems a little low. I thought it was more like one. Well, one well, 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 let me, is uh, 20 originals. So what also happens is there's probably another 20 ish dudes who got injured and rolled back and later made it through. Okay, so that would, so that so, so, so 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 that, then you're probably closer to to twenty percent. Mm -hmm. But and keep in mind, like the guys who you're starting with, they didn't just scrape off the street, right? I mean, the guys who are starting in that two hundred and twenty all made a decision that they wanted to show up and go through buds, and they were you know college football players and outstanding high school wrestlers, and you know you're starting with a body of guys who are incredibly capable to start with, and then you're winnowing it down to 10% of the originals and maybe another 10% who get injured and then later. What's, later what's the average age range, would you say, in your class? So it's interesting. It's interesting because it changed over time. Mm -hmm. I would say in the beginning of that 220, 
you know, you've got kids anywhere, average is plenty of 18, but the average is probably in that kind of 19 to 21 sweet okay. spot. But among the guys who graduated, it's a little older. Interesting. Yeah. A little bit more grit? Well, I think that it helps to have a little bit more life experience. Mm. Now, for me, I was an old man. <laughs> All right. If you remember, like, because I was 26 when I joined, I'm 27 when I'm actually in the buds training. And if you think about that, like, when you're 19 and somebody's 27, that's like your uncle. <laughs> okay. Or, or distant older brother. There, there was, yeah. There was this dude in our class named Johnston who was 30 years old. He was, a Marine, he was a Marine veteran who decided that he wanted to become a SEAL. And we all called him Old Man Johnston. Because mm -hmm. he was 30 years old. Like, he was an old man, mm -hmm. right? But I think that what was very valuable to me was not only had I had that experience being in tough places and obviously I'd done the boxing and, and that stuff, but you also had the maturity to realize like, okay, this isn't going to last forever. Right. Okay. These instructors, they're human beings. Tremendous amount of respect for them, understand them, but I can see them as my fellow men. Mm -hmm. And I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of other hard things in my life and I can, I can make it through this. I also had what I think was a very particular advantage. And a lot of people think of it as a disadvantage, but I think it wasn't. It was for me an advantage was that I was an officer going through. And there aren't, aren't many officers who are going through the training. And they purposefully and rightfully make it harder on the officers because the idea is that if you're going to lead, you better lead. So when you're doing the four-mile timed runs in soft sand, you don't need to just make the cutoff time. You better be one of the guys in front. When you're doing the obstacle course, you're going to need to be one of the guys in front. When you're doing the two-mile ocean swims, you need to be one of the guys in front. When everybody is down and exhausted, you need to be one of the guys who's up and who's capable. And the last person eating. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and every single meal you eat last. Mm -hmm. Every single meal you eat last, which means especially when you've got 220 dudes and you don't have long for, for, for lunch, that means that a lot of times you are getting a pancake and an apple and shoving it in your mouth. And then you're back out outside the chow hall, ready to run back uh, into the training. But the advantage is that if you're doing your job properly as an officer, you don't have time to think about yourself. If you're doing your job properly, the entire time you're in training, you're checking, Hey, this guy looks like he's limping. I got to check on this guy. Cause he had tore his calluses off his hands. Got to make sure that he's got those things taped. You're trying to keep everybody up using your sense of humor, right? Et cetera. And so because of that, you take that focus off of yourself. Anybody who thinks just about themselves going through training will quit. Right. Sure. Yeah. Being introspective, navel gazing. Yeah. So I like that. So you were able to kind of have purpose even within the microcosm of just the training itself. It's not just like God and country, this distant, you know, lands I'm going to protect Dude, if someday. It's, if, it's just, if it's distant <laughs> lands, you ring the bell, you quit. There's no space for philosophical distant lands. You are holding that 200 pound log. You are, you're on our end. You're already exhausted. You got up at five o'clock this morning, right? You're at, you're not even through your day. You're holding this log. You got six dudes who are holding this log with you. You are trudging through. You have no idea when this is going to end. And if you're thinking some distant thoughts, yeah. right, you're out of there. <laughs> <laughs> the thought is literally, is literally, I feel, and, and it's hard to actually explain how bad you hurt. It's not like working out in a gym, right? right. This is, this is pain that's reached like a searing spiritual level. Like every, everything in your body hurts. It's beyond body hurt. 
and you're walking, you got this log and you're literally thinking like, I can take one more step for these dudes. If these dudes are still holding on to this log, I'm going to hold on to this log with them and we're going to make it for another 10 steps and we're going to see what happens. That is how focused you have to be. But that's also, it's a beautiful thing in life too, right? Because you think what defeats people in life? And if you want, I could tell the story of like the hardest moment in our class. Sure. So, so, so this is actually, I think, a really important story. So uh, I remember what was the hardest moment for our entire class, and it came during Hell Week, right? Hell Week, I know, you know it. You've got a bunch of buddies who are in spec ops and, and in the SEAL teams, right? Hell Week is considered the hardest week of the hardest military training in the world. And I remember what was, for our class, the hardest moment of the hardest week of the hardest military training in the world. And that moment came on the second night of Hell Week, Okay, so uh, a lot of your listeners know Hell Week is a week of continuous military training where the average class sleeps anywhere from two and a half to three hours over the course of the entire week of, of training. And what happens is, you know, they wake you up um, uh, in like late afternoon, early evening of the first night, and you've got artillery simulators going off in blanks, and you're in the ocean, and then you're doing push-ups, and then you're running down the beach. Like just complete exhausted chaos and mayhem. But it's kind of cool. Like you're in hell week. I'm like, man, here we are. We're in hell week. This is awesome. Let's jam. Okay. And you're incredibly fit. You're in great shape. You've been thinking about this as a challenge of your life and your adrenaline carries everybody through but the first night. But you don't night. smile out, out on the outside. Otherwise they're going to do more pushups. Yeah. Sometimes. So sometimes it's fun to, to it, it was actually fun to be like, right, bring it, yeah, bring yeah. it. We got, we got it. Yeah. We're smiling. We're having fun out here. Right. So, so we're, we're playing this, we're playing these, uh, uh, games and, and having fun. And, um, but you, so you make it through the first night and then you're kind of, you're making it through the next day. Like, okay, it's cool. Hey, we, we got this right. I keep in mind, it's a whole week of training. But by the time you get to the beginning of the second night, you've now been awake for more than 24 hours. So, you know, your listeners can, can imagine like, how do you feel after you've been awake for 24 hours? Like your head's spinning and you feel terrible. Yeah. And that's when you've just been hanging out. <laughs> you feel awful. Okay. When you've been carrying these logs up and down the beach and running the obstacle course, right? Freezing. And, and you're freezing. You're in and out of the ocean, which is, you know, 50, 60 degrees. And they're leaving you in there for half an hour and then yanking you out and putting you back in. That's how you've spent that 24 hours that you've been awake for. And keep in mind, you haven't even started. You're at the beginning of the second night. Mm -hmm. So what they did at the beginning of the second night was that they took the class out and they lined everybody up on the berm, right? It was a big, big sand berm on the beach to watch as the sun was setting. And as the sun was going down, they came out and they got on their bullhorns. And they also brought out the bell. As a lot of people know, it's kind of famous. If you want to quit in SEAL team training, you run over and you ring the bell three times, that means that you've quit. So what they did is they've got the whole class lined up. They've got the bullhorns out. We're all watching the sunset. And then they started talking to everyone like, gentlemen, say good night to the sun. Tonight is going to be a very, very long night. And by the way, you haven't even started. Right. And so as the sun is going down, they're just stepping inside people's minds. They'd be like, dude, I am thrashed. I've been going through SEAL team training, but like I'm I'm just one day in. And I am more thrashed than I have ever been in my entire life. And this hasn't even started. It hasn't even started. And I'm watching the sun go down. And these guys are talking. 
And then all of a sudden you hear ding, 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 one person quit. Then ding, 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 ding. We had more people quit our class at that moment than quit at any other time in all of the training. And this I've often said to people. So, so imagine this. Who would have thought that the hardest moment of the hardest week of the hardest military training in the world came when all you actually had to do was stand on the beach and watch the sunset? It's, it's, it's something that they don't control. They don't control their own mind. They're, they're worried about what's about to happen. Yes. They're scared of something, the unknown. And as you said, they've, they kind of have already gone through the hard part. The first day is, is really right. the hard part. That's the hard part. And it's going to be hard, but it's going to be hard again and again and again. And <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is actually like the human lesson, not for everybody who's going through SEAL team training, right? But if you think right now, what's really hard in my life? What's really, really, really hard in my life? Is it is it actually where I'm sitting right now? Is it where I'm sitting in my car? Is this is this terrible pain? Is this where I'm, you know, doing my my dishes? Is this terrible pain? No. The pain is in your mind. And the pain isn't even in the moment. The pain is in imagining what might actually happen. Mm -hmm. And the only control that you actually have in life is true mastery of this moment. And if you can, and let me tell you, dude, I can say this now. We've all been there. It's not like, it's not like I, I mastered this in SEAL team training and then I never like felt fear or disappointment or hardship sure. or shame or difficulty. Like, like that all of those things are going to be part of life. But if you can remember, all I have to do and can do right now is master this moment if i can master this moment i can master the next and, and there's something kind of beautiful about a training where you know you know you have to have that mentality like right when your everyday life and walking around and someone cuts you off in traffic you're like ah and you're like want to freak out on them you know it's hard to rem you can't frame it that way you know or, or can't is a very strong word it's more difficult to frame it that way because you're just this kind of blindsided you out of nowhere. And what also the, one of the other big differences, and this is, this is why it's so, and I'm going to make a general point about our culture, why it's important to have friends and why it's important to have a community. One of the other things that makes that much easier actually to master in SEAL team training as hard as it is. So like there's a dude like two inches to your left. So dude, two inches to your right. They're sitting there with you in that moment. And for me, you know, again, like as a, as a leader of a boat crew standing there, like I can make a joke, right? And we, we, we make little jokes under our breath. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in retrospect, they weren't even funny, but like it's one of those things where you know how like things are hilarious when you're exhausted, Absolutely. okay? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like they were hilarious to us, to us then. And especially because you you're sleep deprived. <laughs> you're, you're totally sleep deprived. You're exhausted. You're, you're in a different state. And so those things were, are funny to us. And that little bit of humor is a huge victory. It's actually much difficult, much more difficult, and it's much harder. And I have a lot of sympathy and a lot of empathy for people who have to deal with something on their own. Because mm -hmm. then it sinks into your mind. And then here's the really, really hard thing, Robert. It's not when the things are hard outside. What really, really hurts people is when they turn on themselves. Mm -hmm. That is a vicious battle. And things are hard outside, and then you turn on yourself. I don't think a lot of people make it through that phase. They, uh, they just spiral. It, it, and, that, and that's also like, this is also, this is also the place 
of brotherhood, comradeship, and friendship. Okay, because one of the things that we that we, that's interesting, you think about what does it mean to to save a brother or to save a friend in the military? It's kind of easy. Everybody imagines, oh, you actually you run into fire and you grab them and you pull them back. You take the injured man and you throw him over your shoulder and you fire him and carry him to safety. Like that's one way to to save people. But it's also true that in all of your life, you have people right now, and no matter who you are, if you're listening to this, you have people right now who could use your strength. Mm -hmm. And if you can reach out to them, sometimes even the smallest touch can actually help to pull them out. And so especially when somebody's turned on themselves, you can't do it for them. But if you can reach out to them and let them know that you are there for them, amid all of that hardship, all of the self despair, all of the despair, all of the self-loathing, and you're there for them and you believe in them, maybe, not always, but maybe they'll start to see themselves in the way that they're, they're, you're seeing them. Reminds me of the, uh, this Japanese phenomenon. I think it's called hikikomori, if memory serves. <clears throat> it's about a, something approaching like 1% of the population uh, falls in this category. It's basically just people who never leave their house ever. Um, and it's predominantly men, but not exclusively. And, um, they just don't want to leave their house. They play video games and they really only see their family and that's it. Th their whole life is just a shut in. And I got to think that that's very similar to what we're experiencing in the United States. Um, culturally, oh, it's happening all over the United States. Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. just absolutely lack of direction and, and, and hopelessness. And the culture and the products are designed to make you sick in your home. If you are sick in your home and you're on this device, you can be very profitable to people. The only things that you do are take your prescription medications, buy the products that they're telling you to buy, and then maybe when you leave, show up sick. You're making a lot of money for a lot of people. And, and, and it's, it's obviously, it's, it's a miserable existence, but there are a lot of incentives now that are designed and actually keeping a lot of people, not, let's not say keeping, because they have, they have the power and the agency to change this, but there's a lot of energy in that direction. And I don't want to sound like one of those like guys who like claims that like everything that they grew up in was the golden age, but like, it was just much harder to do that in the 1970s. Like, what would you do? Right now, there are all these things, and there's Netflix, and there's Amazon Prime, and there's your phone. And like, you can spend 48 hours inside of your house, mm -hmm. and that's not good for anybody. <clears throat> I mean, we proved it with the pandemic, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> if we're going down that road, <laughs> baby, saying, but, we got a lot. Yes, yeah, they, 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 they did prove it. They did prove it. And, and, and the, the most disgusting way that you could imagine, one of the most disgusting abuses, tyrannical, vicious, hateful, anti-freedom, anti-health abuses we have ever suffered in this country, and we are still suffering the consequences of that tyranny. But enough on that, Robert. Uh, I mean, I mean <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy yeah. to go down that yeah, route, yeah, but yeah. I think uh, that may right. be a separate conversation. Yeah, fine, that's um, fine. Yeah. Um, so one other thing that kind of was happening around the same time, um, slightly afterwards, was 9-11. Right. Um, so I'd always had this question in my head, like long before I even knew you existed. I, I wonder what would, 
what would training have been like? Would they have accelerated it for people? Would they just said, look, you know, let's just drop some standards for a while to get some operators going because we're about to head off to war. Like what was, what was the mood like internally and what was training like? Yeah. So, so number of reflections on that. First, I'll just tell you the story of when we found out, like we were doing a two mile ocean swim that morning. Keep in mind we're on the West coast, right? So it's, so it's earlier. We're doing a two mile ocean swim. We came out of the ocean and I remember some dude came running down the beach and he's like a plane hit a bill. I'm like, whatever. Like we got things to do, man. We got to, we got to go to chow. Right. (laughs) So, so we, we, we come out and we uh, basically get, get dressed and then we run over to the chow hall and by the time we got there, there were people gathered around the TVs. And obviously, this was a massive event. It's, in, it's very hard to go back and remember how little we knew then. How little people knew about Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. People couldn't have found it on the map. How little people knew about Islam. Right? How people, little, little people knew about the nature of insurgency. Right? It just wasn't the kind of thing we were talking about, right? You know, keep in mind, we just we'd won the Cold War at the end of the 1980s. And then we ha- we briefly had the Gulf War. And then over the course of the 1990s, yeah, you had Bosnia, you had Somalia, you had Kosovo, you had a couple of these little skirmishes. But we were a nation that was at peace in a unipolar world. There were no competitors to the United States of America at that at that time. And we knew almost nothing. And keep in mind, our instructors, right? If our instructors were like really cool veterans, like they were dudes who'd been in the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they'd like, there weren't that many dudes who did stuff in Bosnia. And Somalia was, was you know, mostly a, a green, a Delta operation, but there were a couple of dudes who'd been around. Like those were the stories, right? So it's not even like we had a bunch of a combat veteran um, instructors at the time. So everything had changed. One of the things that was cool about being there, and this is one of the places where you realize like these, you know, seals are just built differently, is that like all of these guys said, and not in a way of like bravado or, you know, machismo, they truly, truly felt like, God, I wish I'd been on one of those planes. Mm-hmm. They, and that's why they were here. That's why we were here. And I think fairly soon it became clear that like, wow, our class is going to war. We are going to war. Now they didn't change anything in the training at the time because we didn't know anything. Like, well, what are we going to change it to? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what, what are we going to? How is this war going to going to going to going to uh, shape us? But what did change over time was that we realized that we were going to go to war, and. Indeed, like our class did, and and we had lots of members of our class who actually died and, and, and gave their gave their lives overseas in in Iraq or Afghanistan. So um, that was the big kind of emotional change, mm-hmm. rather than necessarily them changing the, the <clears throat> curriculum. So, did you see an uptick in uh, new uh, buds entrance, like people wanting to come in? So, uh, well. What was really cool, and again, it's 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 sad and and difficult to um, realize how far the country has fallen from that time. But if you remember, after September 11th, there was a rush on recruiting offices, a rush, mm-hmm. 
hundreds of thousands, millions of young men and women went to their recruiting offices. What do I do? How do I serve? And so, yes, there was a tremendous interest in people coming in to be of service everywhere. Navy, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force, Coast Guard. Everybody wanted to find Space Force. A, come on. Well, well, Space Force wasn't around <laughs> then. Space Force wasn't around then. Yeah. So, so the, people wanted to find Space Force. <laughs> people wanted to find a way to serve. So that upsurge was not something that was apparent to us at all because we didn't we didn't see it. We're living in our own little bubble inside of the the actual buds training. But over time, you did start to see. There's a lot more people who are who are applying, and and credit to them, they did not lower the standards. Because mm-hmm. keep in mind, you know, as you know, and as I think where your question is coming from, there became this tremendous need for special operations forces, but we didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. And this is still back in September, October, November of 2011. Like we didn't know how this was going to actually turn out. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I didn't think that would happen, but I also was kind of curious, like, I wonder if there was just some general saying, just pass them. Let's get, <laughs> you know, like, we got to get this this engine going because we're about to need a lot of these guys really quick. No. And we, it, we, it, and we could always revisit some of the some of the training that's sort of optional or like less important, you know, like yeah. we don't need as many comms guys right now. We need more like boots on ground. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I can't speak to you know, what happened across the military. But the good thing was it certainly, at least when I was there, there was no drop in standards. Mm-hmm. And if anything, there was more seriousness um, because there was a recognition like, dude, this is real. The things that we are teaching you right now um, in third phase and land warfare, the things that we're teaching you in SEAL qualification training, like you're going to use these things mm-hmm. probably maybe soon. Right. And you better take this seriously because this could be your life or your buddy's life. Your buddy's life, yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. Okay, so uh, you went on to to do several things or many things rather, um, but you also ran a boat crew, which I thought was kind of a cool yeah. uh, story. Yeah. So, first of all, tell us about this craft, the Mark Five. Uh, like what? Like what? What is this thing, dude? It's just like one of the most fun things you could ever imagine at the time. Okay, so think about this is my job, right? This is one of one of my jobs. So I was a commander of what was called a Mark Five Special Operations Craft Detachment. A Mark V is a boat. It's about 82 feet long, goes super fast, does 50 knots, has a bunch of guns and sensors on it. Yep. <laughs> it's just bristling. I've got, I've got uh, uh, two, and, and in the detachment, there's two of these boats, okay? And then there's about 20 dudes in the, inta- in the detachment, including some of the guys who are maintenance guys specifically for, you got your operators and then you have your, your maintenance. How, how many people are on these things? You have five or six. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not, it's not, it's not a big crew. It's not, it's not, not a big crew. And so my job was that we were going to do uh counterterrorism operations in Southeast Asia. And I have two of these boats, 20 dudes. And we started in Singapore. We ended up going into Malaysia, Thailand. We ended up bouncing all the way across uh, Borneo and then operating in the southern Philippines. <laughs> and the entire time, uh, my closest boss was in Guam. It's just, it's just like, was one of the coolest jobs uh, you could have ever, ever so asked like, for. What happens if things go wrong? Are you just kind of like out there in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, that's the deal. <laughs> You're out there in the middle of nowhere. It's you and your team. <clears throat> and yeah, if things, if things go really wrong, right? It's like, 
Well, one of the boats is towing the other. That's it. That's why you have two boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, and and that and that that stuff happens. Uh-huh. That stuff happens when you're dealing with, you know, metal and engines in salt water for a long time. Like, as anybody who's a, you know, boating person even knows, like stuff breaks. Mm-hmm. Stuff breaks in the ocean, and it especially breaks when you're doing fifty knots and you're hopping on the waves and you're doing stuff at night and whatever. Like things things can break, but yeah, if there was a if there was a problem, like you had to deal with it. It's funny because when I, maybe it was just my friends growing up, but when we when we were always talking about seals, we always kind of thought of them as uh, as more like like the Navy SEALs, the movie. You know, it's mostly in cities or whatever. But a huge chunk of what you did was in the land, in the sea, obviously. Yeah. So I was always kind of curious, um, like, do you have to understand how basically every kind of boat works? Do you, they really kind of give you a, a tour of? Like here's what sailing boats and how they work. Cause you might end up on a sailing boat at some point, or here's a you know, cargo ship. You might end up on one of those one day and just kind of have to learn the. Not, not really. Okay. I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta know your craft. And then if you are in a seal team that is doing called VBSS visit board search and seizure, and you're kind of, uh, they did a lot of those operations in the 1990s when they were enforcing the uh, oil embargo and things like that. If you're if you're uh, one of those guys, then yeah, eventually you need to get familiar with that craft. Or if, like, let's say you're doing um, intelligence operations off the coast of the Philippines, and you have people who are in Filipino fishing boats, like you better know how those little <laughs> little boats uh, look right. and and work, etc. Yeah. But you basically end up learning you whatever learn the, the, the thing is, <laughs> rather than trying to teach you every every. Well, boat I was that, thinking that, yeah, more yeah. about the the reason that might be useful is you might end up on one of those boats accidentally just swimming out, like you're trying to evade some capture or something. You might end up on some random boat. So you better know how it works, you know, but yeah, that'd be a good thing. <laughs> or, or you just make it up. <laughs> or you just make it up. What, what, what does this button do? What is it? What does this key do? Is there an accelerator here? Oh, it's a throttle. Okay. All right. right. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. All right. So, um, I think one other thing that came in the book that I thought was super interesting was uh, the situation you were in where there was some drug controversy going around with some of the, some of the other, uh, I guess some seals, but also maybe some other groups of people. Right. right. Um, And uh, so maybe you better just tell from there. um, You can tell. Yeah. Look, it was a really hard and terrible situation was that, you know, it's an incredible, incredible community. Um, your number one job as an officer is to take care of uh, the men who are under your command, right? And you, you got to get get the mission done and take care of your people. And unfortunately, like there was one officer who had lost his way, who was doing cocaine, doing other drugs. And then unfortunately, it sounds like what, what, what we, we later learned was actually selling it to some younger guys. And the, the real tragedy there, Robert, is that you know, the guys who he was uh, selling it to or giving to were never guys who would have went and done drugs. But then they came and they saw, well, God, man, like that, that, that's, a, that's a SEAL officer. He's been around. Like, that must be the cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that's what happens. And some of these guys were on their first deployment who ended up, um, you know, falling under that, under that influence. And it was, it was really, it was tragic and um, it's also the case that at the end of the day, like you just can't have it. Like you, you it sounds so simple, but like you cannot do cocaine <laughs> and then shoot a 50 caliber machine gun 
one foot away from somebody's head during close-up. Like, it's just you, those two things don't mix, obviously, <laughs> right? So obviously, like, he had to be dealt with and he had to be, you know, he had to move on. Um, and, you know, I, 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 you know, obviously, years later, I, of, I also have, you know, sympathy for him. He obviously was going through something that was incredibly, you know, hard in his life. And I, I hope he's, I hope he's doing well. But that just was a decision that just couldn't be tolerated. You just could not have a leader who was doing that with other guys. Yeah, I also, I thought your reaction was interesting because it was, I forget, it was, you were somewhere where it was another group who kind of alerted your team to it. But um, your reaction was, well, I guess we have to test everybody. Not yeah. not just the couple of potential culprits, but just, just everybody. Make it simple. Right. Instead, instead of like doing some crazy like witch hunt, like who said this, who did it, or whatever, like just look. All right, fine. Like everybody's gonna take a urinalysis mm -hmm. test, and if you're doing cocaine, adios. Right. Can't do that. Like if you if that's the choice that you're making, you're doing that instead of keeping yourself safe, healthy, fit, and capable, and protecting your team, which is your mission and your duty. Then like you can't be here. Right. I mean, it sounds really simple, but I would have done the witch hunt. Just <laughs> my my natural inclination, like I'll figure it out. Uh, but but I think your answer was more elegant. Um, yeah, and and look, the the idea also is and was like in these situations, like how much time and energy are we going to spend? Like this, this obviously was a tremendous sink of time of and course. energy and whatever. Like how much th this is? Th it's just like anything in your life that takes you off mission. How much time? energy emotional energy psychological energy are we going to spend on this problem or are we going to figure out not maybe the perfect way but like the best way we can to deal with it so that we can get back on our mission i thought it was elegant i like that right. answer so let's talk about resilience yeah. um so of the books is by far my favorite i really really enjoy this. In fact, Thanks, I think man. I, I think I even told you like immediately after I, uh, read it, like, I think I sent you a text or something. I'm like, dude, this is a great book. Thanks, man. Um, well, I don't, I read a lot of books or I listen to them, unfortunately, cause I'm pretty dyslexic. Um, so, uh, I have a lot of context for, you know, I would say good writing, you know, yeah. like, cause everyone I read is, I would say on par or even, above great like they yeah. are they're all yeah. great writers yeah. for the most part and this was a really impressive book for many reasons um so how you wrote it i just cannot wrap my head around the process of getting this book put together like i know you said it was a bunch of letters but i still can't picture taking those letters and somehow massaging them or whatever way you needed to do to turn this into a book like what because the, the letters must have happened over many months or years. Right, I don't know right, how long right, it took to write them. Right. And then, like, what does the editing process look like for this book? I, like, it's all very confusing to me. How did you write this right. book? And there are things that you, you know, said in the letter that were, because, like, when you're writing to somebody, you say one thing. But then for somebody to consume the letter in a book, right, if I made a point here about, I might have written them a letter. It's like identity, friendship mentors, et cetera, are all packaged in one thing. But I want to make that 
uh, into a lesson that you or another reader can carry. All right, we're going to take this piece on identity and this piece on identity, and we're going to package that all together into this lesson on identity mm-hmm. for Zach, for, for Drew Sheets. Um, that was, uh, first I'll tell you, like, it was a lot of hard work, but it was also really fun. I bet. Yeah. I it bet. Was, it was really, really fun. I think it came through, actually. It, it was a... F- it was a dense read. Like I kind of felt like I needed to reread it, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't recommend that people only listen to audio. Um, having done that, um, I recommend having having the book next to you so you can stop the book and go back and read it over, get highlight if you need to or whatever. Because it was there's so many little like, ooh, I got to back up. What does they say again? Oh, I got to back up again. <laughs> my my favorite, not... I'll tell you my f- most, the most beautiful, my favorite thing as an author is when people bring me a copy and it has coffee stains on it <laughs> and post-it notes and, and underlines and three uh-huh. different pens because uh-huh. they went through it and whatever. And so it's actually meant just like old or philosophical works were meant to be. It's meant to be something that you have and you keep. And also, this is one of the ideas behind philosophy, and I talk about this in, in the book, in the chapter on philosophy, was that, you know, you think about one of the most famous philosophical books is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. I, that is so funny you're saying that. First of all, I'm reading that right now. Secondly, this book reminds me a lot of that book. I mean, his quips are very short and not, right. not strung together coherently. And also it's very ancient language, but this reminds me a lot of that book. Well, and that that's intentional because what is Marcus Aurelius is doing in his meditations? Okay. If, if he was sitting here right now, if he just, just showed up and he said, Marcus, I want to talk to you about your book. He'd be like, what book? <laughs> what book? You guys took that thing and you made it into a book. Like uh-huh. this was his notes to himself. And it was a philosophical exercise, just like you and I would wake up and people wake up and they pray or they do their push-ups or they work out. One of the philosophical exercises that he would do is he would write things down to remind himself of what he already knew. Mm-hmm. And this is a very important point about philosophy. People th- often think of philosophy because they think of it in this academic way. They think that it's something to read, understand, and put away. But in fact, reading philosophy, interacting with it, using it, is meant to be a process just like eating good food, just like taking a shower, like you don't get to say like, oh man, I had a great meal last week, and I've I, I haven't haven't had anything since. <laughs> Dude, I, I showered last month. It was fantastic, right? The idea is that you have to. The way human beings are constructed, you need to have that constant infusion of quality wisdom. That that is going to shape your every day, which is why he's going through the exercise of reminding himself of things that he already knew and reflecting and, you know, and, and, and they're, they're very real meditations. You know, he's talking in meditations about like, why are you bothered by the fact that that dude's armpits stink? Mm-hmm. Like, he's the emperor of Rome, yeah. but he's like, like, how come that threw me off? Like it's a very, it's a very real <laughs> yeah, book. It could have been written today. Yeah. And in the same way, uh, what resilience is meant to do. And it's interesting. I recently just in the last, I guess it was in the last week and a half, I went back and reread my own chapter on freedom. Okay, I wrote the book, but I needed to be reminded of things that are in it. That's the nature of of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Well, I found it to be a fantastic read. Thanks, um, man. There's a lot of, um, and first of all, you're very well read. Um, 
because there's a lot of individual quotes in there and and you it's not just like you went to a quote database and found a quote or something it's like strung together like here's why this is important this is what they were talking about this is what was happening at the time like you've really weaved this all together and i really really enjoyed the book and uh, i just received this copy like two nights ago so the, the few dents in it are my coffee stains <laughs> uh, <Yeah. clears throat> because i did not have the, the physical copy when right. i was listening to it um uh, ironically i started with resilience i kind of went backwards in time i actually started the most recent and whew, worked backwards but um but i still think it's my favorite thanks um, man yeah it was yeah. It, it is it is the most i would say of, of all of the, the books it is the it, because it was written as a way to be a gift to my friend mm-hmm. And, and hopefully it is a gift to anyone who is listening. And look, we all have different abilities and, and, and things that we're also not good at. I think one of the things that I am very fortunate that I would say is one of my gifts is being able to take something that sounds in theory like it's an abstract philosophical concept and tell it to my buddy, Drew Sheets, who has a high school education. No, dude, this is yours. This is actually what it means. And this is what it means for your life right now. And this is how it can be helpful and how you can put it into practice. Okay. So the audience has no idea what we're talking about with this Drew Sheets guy. So um, why don't you, like, what was the impetus to write it initially? Yeah. So very quick story. Drew Sheets. So I talked about 220 guys down to 21. All right. Drew Sheets is one of the guys who's in my buds class and in a class of incredibly tough guys. Sheets is certainly one of the toughest. Okay. If, if you if you made people pick like oh for sure like he is on everybody's top three list okay he's a kid from a northern california logging family just tough tough uh super smart super capable guy and uh the short story is yeah he goes through seal team training with me graduates with me goes to afghanistan comes home from his deployment and um basically ends up suffering some from some post-traumatic stress disorder I could go through all of the different things that happened, but Drew, who has never in his life done anything with moderation, starts drinking. Okay? And he he's he this is look, when seals go wrong, they can go really wrong, right? Because it's got a tremendous amount of capacity. So he so he's not not working through a six pack or a twelve pack. He can crush a cooler in a weekend. Okay. Goes really wrong. And long story short, he ends up getting arrested. So my buddy who had come home from Afghanistan as the sort of Navy SEAL, war hero, dad. He'd bought a concrete pumper. He was an entrepreneur. He's a businessman. He's doing all this stuff. All of a sudden now, he is an unemployed alcoholic on disability who's looking at the prospect of his kids having to come visit him in jail. Mm-hmm. So we talked the night that he called me. And again, like we were friends. And he's one of the, the kinds of buddies who like you, check in with at Thanksgiving, you check in with at Christmas. It's not like we had always, you know, been, been back and forth with each other. In fact, after Bud's, I think we'd only seen each other like once or twice before he called. But look, this is the nature of like, when you suffer with people, like you're there with them for yeah. your whole life. And like yeah. any dude who's like, was in Bud's with me, any of like they call you, like you pick up the phone. And I remember when I was driving and I saw his number come up, I was like, oof. I actually, the fir- my first thought was like somebody in our class died. He's calling to tell me something. But then he told me what, it, what had happened to him. So I, you know, uh, wrote to him and then he wrote back to me 
And then I wrote to him and we kind of went back and forth, sometimes with physical letters, sometimes with, with emails. And like eventually like this started to become a thing that we had. There's actually like, there's a, there's a book here. That's cool. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought it was great. Thanks, really man. great. It, it, um, it actually kind of makes you the warrior poet. You know what I mean? Like you've, I think you've kind of, you've ever rub- you have that rubber stamp now. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Look, I think it's, I think it's actually really important. You know that there's that famous quotation and it's actually disputed as to where it comes from, but there's that famous quotation, any nation that makes too great of a distinction between its warriors and its scholars will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Hmm. We need to have men who are capable, and this is at every level, not just in the SEAL teams, right? Everywhere, who are capable of thinking and fighting, who are capable of strength and compassion. And that this is all part of all of our makeups. And so I, I, I very much appreciate that. And I think it's something that, that is available to everybody. And how is he doing now? Very well. Very yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adam Super Pack. solid. Uh, to- totally sober. Uh, great dad. Uh, working. Great, great guy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I As I was reading it, you know, I know you personally. So um, I get to see you in different sort of settings than you know, podcast. Um, or professionally yeah, also, yeah, right. right? It's just totally relaxed. And um, one thing that stood out to me is I had I saw one interaction with your boys, and I'm not going to get into the story, but they were misbehaving in some very stupid way, and, you know, just kids, kids will do. And um, and your reaction just kind of blew me away. You, you took your eldest aside, and you're like, you know better than to do this in front of your brother. Like, you know, you're like admonishing him not for the te- for the misdeed because that's obviously wrong. Yeah. Like they all know that's wrong. Right. That's bad, right? right? And there was some other kids there, and they also were involved. Yeah. <laughs> they're all they're all equally guilty of the task of the thing, but he's extra guilty because he's the eldest and he needs yes. to set a good, you know, Example. he needs to be the role model for yeah. for his for his little brother. Right. And watching you do that, I was just like, wow, that is really a more remarkable to watch you think through that, you know, cause everyone's kind of like, how do you punish a kid? But I mean, it's a, it was a stupid thing, but also, you know, you don't want to like ruin their whole day or right. you know, week right. about right. the thing or whatever, you know, but you also want to send them home with a real lesson, you know, and the younger ones like looking at the older one getting admonished, like, oof, like I don't, you know, like I need, I need to actually follow what's going on here right. and I need to pay attention. I want to be that. And, yeah. And so, I always thought that was really cool, but it kind of, as I was reading the book, I just kind of kept reminding me of that, that thing that happened. I'm like, that was really fun to watch. Well, there's, there's, I'll, let me pull out the concept that's underneath that. Sure. Right. And I, I'm not thinking about this conceptually in the moment. I'm like, yeah. dude, he just threw a ball off the seven, four, whatever. Like, Hey, the kid do that boys. All right. So, but, but let me, you knew exactly what I was talking I knew, about. I knew exactly what you were talking about. So, so, but, but let me, let me pull the concept out. Cause I think it's actually really, 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 if there's, and one thing we've talked about, this is going to be the most important for everybody who's, who's listening. So I'm going to, I'm going to take kind of a step back from that moment and then I'll bring it back to what's happening with the kids. The trap of our culture today is that it starts by asking you, how are you feeling? And it sounds like, oh, how are you feeling? How are you doing? How are you feeling today? Right? 
and I ask people how they're feeling. It's a fine thing to ask, but the trap of the culture. Great. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the trap of the culture is that they ask, how are you feeling? And then the implicit assumption is based on how you're feeling, you then take action. Well, what happens is that your actions become your identity. That becomes who you are. The things that you do become who you are. So the trap of the culture is to start by asking you how your feelings and then based on how you're feeling, and you could be feeling terrible. You could be feeling really bad. And then you're supposed to take action based on that. And that becomes who you are. What all, and again, we talk about ancient philosophy. They disagreed with each other about a whole host of different issues, but almost all of them agree. And this is true in Western philosophy. It's true. Mencius, Confucius, Lao Tzu, like you start with who you are. The question is not, how are you feeling this morning? The question is, who are you? Who are you as a man? Who are you as a boy? Well, okay, I, I'm a leader. I'm an author. I'm, I'm a lover. I'm, I'm a warrior. I, I'm an adventurer. Who, who are you? And then you answer, if you answer that question, you then say, okay, well, what does such a man do? What does a warrior do? What does a leader do? And then you do that thing. And then what happens is that because you do that thing, you feel a certain way. You do 50 push-ups, you feel differently after than you did before. You do something kind, you feel differently after than you did before. In the same way you do something self-destructive, you feel differently after than you did before. The trap of the culture is to start with feeling. So what's actually happening there with Joshua is, is I'm reminding him, hey man, like you're an older brother. You're an older brother. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? Because you're setting an example right now for him. And in a very positive way, I'm not talking about what he did wrong. I'm showing which, which him. Which is obvious. Which is, <laughs> he knows. He knows. Every kid there knew. Like, that. Like this, no, no, right. I'm not going to learn that. Did you know that's wrong, John? Like, like, he knew. He knew. We, and, and the fact, we all do. And this is, this is the lesson for everybody, whether, whether you're seven years old or 70 years old. Like, we all do things that we know are not the best things to do or that's wrong. Right. But you remind yourself, in the, okay, who am I? Then, if that's who I am, like, how should I? act and then the beautiful thing is you act that way you're going to feel differently and that's the real magic key that our culture has completely flipped backwards mm -hmm. and there's well, people's feelings or how are you feeling like, like actually like if i really care about you right and especially if you're in a place as a leader like you're like i don't you cared about throwing that ball you felt like that was a good thing to do you want to throw that off a seven-story building? Like, I don't, like, whether you felt like that or not, like, I don't care. The question is, who are you? Mm -hmm. and, and because I love you, because I love you, because I see your magnificence, because I see your potential, I'm going to help you to become the man that you're capable of becoming. And this is true both in relationships with kids, but it's also true in relationships with partnerships, right? If I love you, I see your magnificence. I see what you are capable of and I'm going to love you just as you are. And I am always going to believe in and support you becoming your highest and best self. Mm -hmm. And so what you're trying to do with the, with the kids is like, I, I love you just like you are. I don't love you any less because you did this thing. Like God knows <laughs> dumb things I've done. All right. <laughs> right? Like we, 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 we love with that pure love. I love you exactly how you are. And, and because I love you, 
I see what you're capable of. And I'm going to remind you, man, you're a leader. You're an older brother. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's great. Okay. Well, I think it's time we shift sure. um, and start talking about the governorship. Yes. This is, I think, the unsavory, but also quite interesting. Um, kind I of, love it. Let's do it. All right. Let's go. <clears throat> okay. Well, first of all, like, why did you want to get in politics? Like, <laughs> what got you there? Well, look, in the same way, it, it actually goes back to your very first question. Okay. Like, who, I, I had read all of this history. Who do I admire? I admired Marcus Aurelius. Mm -hmm. I admired Winston Churchill. I admired Teddy Roosevelt. Who were these guys? These were men of action who were incredibly thoughtful. They, all of them left a legacy in words as well as in action. And they did hard stuff. They took on the questions of their, of their, of their times and they were engaged in public leadership. And one of the beautiful things, one of the real gifts that I was given early was to actually read biography. Not read like Wikipedia entries, not read, but to actually read biography. And one of the reasons that's a, such a gift is that you realize how greatly every leader has suffered. You realize how terribly they have been treated. Hands down, for sure, there's, the person who comes in second isn't even close. In the last 100, 150 years, the most hated man on the British Isles was Winston Churchill. Just like without a doubt, just if you just could measure the pure volume of hatred directed towards a human being, in the history of the United States of America, for certain, the most hated man was Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. And it's not close. So one of the things that I had uh, it was very You're like, sign me up for that. No, no, but, 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 but it was not signing up for the hatred, but it's, but, but it was, but it was saying, but it was saying, Hey, like I'm going to, I'm going to head in and I'm going to do this. It's going to be tough, but this is also what's necessary. Right. I've been doing this work with the mission continues. I'd come back from Iraq in 2007, started that and it was fantastic work. And we we're literally saving lives. It was incredibly, you know, it was great work. The Heart and the Fist was out. It was a New York Times bestseller. Resilience out was a New York Times bestseller. And it's kind of like the same decision that I made um, when I left Oxford, right? I was, I was making more money. I was successful. I was, you know, doing, I was on the, uh, Tom Brokaw was doing a feature and I was on the Today Show and doing all these things. And, and, and it was all positive and all good. And I felt, though, that there was more for me to do. I mean, I looked not just at, at my home state of Missouri, but I looked at, at the direction that the country was going. And I was like, God, we need to have people who are willing to step up. And I'd never been involved in politics before, but I was like, look, the governor can do something. He can get something done. So let's, uh, let's get in. So you were running as an outsider, having never uh, done politics before in any capacity, not even like city council or- Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Zero. And it was one of the great advantages, actually, right? Sometimes, sometimes knowing nothing can be a huge advantage. <laughs> and I'm still like, if I had known things, I don't know that I ever would have done it. It was a huge advantage. I knew nothing. I had no donors. I had no party machinery. I had zero. And I ended up running against the lieutenant governor, the uh, former speaker of the house, and a self-funding, you know, centimillionaire-ish kind of character who'd already run and had a tremendous amount of name recognition. So when we started running, when they did the initial polls, 
right? All these guys were 30% for them. We were like 2%. And that was with like a 4.5% margin of error. So like we could have actually been negative, been at, negative. At, 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 at the time. So, so no one, and, and, and it turned out that this was an advantage. No one took the candidacy seriously. And yet you won. Yes, we did. Nice. We, won, we won and we won by a substantial margin. We ended up winning by a substantial margin in the primary. And I'll, the, the, the brief story, it's also helpful. We won, we won the primary. And one of the reasons why we were able to win was that I had all of these veterans who I'd worked with all over the state of Missouri. And these guys were also like, also like me, not political. Like, dude, Greitens is like, what, what part? I, I don't know. Whatever. Who cares what parties? And like, if that dude's running for something, like I'm, I'm down. Mm. And not only am I down, like my family's down. And I'm going to tell everybody in my community and like, so we had this huge uh, base of volunteers. Plus, I also had a lot of people who had supported me financially through the mission continues. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why politics is so broken is that all of the funding comes from the establishment. It all comes from the insiders, right? So then who do you think the politicians serve? <laughs> they get there and they serve the people who paid for them. I was in this place where... Um, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like 85 to like 92%, something like that, of all of the people who gave to our campaign had never donated to politics before. Wow. So we had this incredible campaign of outsiders, and that's how with that kind of volunteer support, and you know, I worked tremendously hard, like we won the primary, and then the primary in Missouri is in August, right? So the general election's in November. But also, after we won the primary, nobody gave us a chance to win the general election. Okay, mm -hmm. People think of Missouri as being a fairly uh, Republican state now, and it has. It's it shifted. But when I was running in 2016, I think four, three or four of the statewide office holders were all Democrats. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Democrat governor, I think it was Democrat secretary. I can't remember, but, but mostly Dems. And so I'm running, and not only am I... Um, so, so when you finish a, a contested primary, you're broke. You've spent all your money. I sure. had $0 <laughs> in the bank. And our opponent had at the time, I can't remember, it was 9 or $11 million in the bank. And it's August, okay? The, the, the election is early November. There's no time right. to raise all of this, this, this money. Had a tremendous amount of money in the bank. He was also the darling of the political establishment. Um, he was, at the time, the attorney general, so he had all of the lobbyists, all of the insiders, all of the deals that were done. If you had gone to the state capitol and actually held the election among the people who are politicians, lobbyists, insiders, um, let's say out of any hundred, the vote would have been 98 to 2. Right. And the two might have been mistaken. I'm like, oh, sorry. I didn't realize I filled out the ballot. So, so, so everyone, the consensus among everybody was like, well, okay, Greitens did that thing and he won the primary, but there's no way for him to win uh, the general election, but we did. So you actually did some pretty cool stuff, like pretty, like almost right out of the gate. Like you had an executive order to like stop people from uh, kind of leaving immediately and going right into lobbying and kind of stop that revolving door and yeah so here, here here here's like the big picture story was also people thought okay well Greitens won and he said all that stuff about being an outsider and he said all that stuff about taking on the lobbyists and he said all that stuff about returning power to people but he's not really gonna do that I mean everybody said that stuff but dude we sent a powerful message on my first day okay so I took the oath of office an hour later 
I signed executive orders. Number one was that there's no more gifts from lobbyists. And that sounds so simple, right? But it was absurd. People could come up to a lawmaker, give them a vacation in the Caribbean. <laughs> oh, it's a conference. We're just going to talk to them and educate them on it. Give them a vacation in the Caribbean, right? <laughs> and then they, they went around, oh, well, I'm, my, that didn't affect my vote. No, you can't, you can't any longer give gifts, right? right? And you can't take these guys out for steak meals. They got to pay for their own food, okay? The lobbyists in the end, so that, that sent a really strong message, and all of the insiders hated it. Of course. Second thing that we did, and this is a really important point I'll explain about like how politics works. One of the reasons why the system is so broken, and it's important to understand how insidious it is, is that what happens is people go and they work for a governor, say, or they work for a congressman, or they work for a senator, and they work there for a couple of years. Well, what happens when they're working there? They're meeting all the lobbyists, they're meeting all the insiders. You don't make that much money when you're in government. And, they, and you have a lot of young people who are there, idealistic, young and idealistic people who come in. Well, the lobbyists start saying to them, hey, man, I, I need your help on this issue. And but they used to be taking them for vacations and taking them for dinner. So they're getting to know them, they're giving them all these gifts. And... You know, when you leave, when you're ready to just start a family, when you're 27, 28, and you want to, you know, stop making $50,000 a year and you want to make $300,000, you should come and work for us, okay? And they know how valuable that young person becomes very valuable in politics because they were just in the governor's office. They were just in the congressman's office. They were just in the senator's office. Now they, they become buddies with everybody who's there. So then they get hired by the lobbying firms, who then pay them a bunch of money to basically talk to all of their friends. And this is how the political establishment starts to own the politicians and their staffs. Mm -hmm. So what I did on the first day was I signed an executive order that said, if you work in the governor's office and you leave, you cannot become a lobbyist the entire time I'm governor. And kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a very simple thing. And like literally everybody who's listening to this is like, okay, well, that seems like a fair enough rule. But what you're doing is that was like taking a nuclear bomb and placing it in the garage of the lobbyists and the insiders. Mm -hmm. If you took away their gifts and you took away their, their ability to dangle cash, and by the way, I set up a policy which I held, which is I never met with a lobbyist the entire time I was governor. <laughs> Okay. How? So, so they're so, like everywhere. Yeah. No, no. They're literally <laughs> crawling around. They're literally crawling around the Capitol. That's for people who don't know, who don't hang out in state capitals, don't hang out in like they're everywhere. Okay. Like, like just in the elevator, just waiting to meet you. <laughs> so there you go. So all of a sudden, like, like Graydon's, he's not going to meet with you. You can't dangle cash in front of his staff and you can't give gifts to, to, um, uh, to politicians. This was war on the establishment. Mm -hmm. So you at one point got in trouble for um, an advertisement <coughs> about rhino hunting. Um, oh, that was later. I got in trouble for lots of I, ads, I know, Robert. I know, yes, I yes. know, I know. But which, which I thought was just hilarious that anyone cared at all about it. It's obviously a joke. You were obviously right. a satire. But out of curiosity, what do you think of the Republican Party? I'm like, if you were to just put a, like, here's, here's, what, here's what I think about them. Completely corrupt completely corrupt and what's really sad is and that's true of both parties sure okay 
you have a combination of a lack of courage and corruption. And we've reached a point now in the United States of America where, certainly speaking to the Republican Party, the party apparatus, the people who are in charge of the party, who are often spending money on behalf of candidates, they're getting that money from lobbyists. They're getting that money from insiders. They're getting that money from big pharma who makes money when you're sick. They're getting millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars. So who do you think they're looking out for? Is it you or is it the people who are giving them tens of millions of dollars? And uh, I mean, we could, we could say more, but uh, if, you, if you want a like, quick bow on it, the sad thing is, is that the party no longer represents the people who used to um, identify, or some of them still do, as Republicans or conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you may not remember this, but you had some allegations against you. Yes, uh, I, I do. I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so I did quite a bit of research going into this, yeah. so I, cause I could talk about all these points, but it's skipping ahead a little bit. There was this, uh, vice, um, thing that came out. It was about like a 10 minute episode about you. And they started off the thing with saying, uh, he is, uh, very likely the most hated person in the state. And I'm like more than like Mao and Stalin and Hitler. Like, <laughs> Like how did, did I get the most hated person in America or just the most hated person <laughs> they, in, in Missouri? They said I, Missouri specifically. Oh, all right. Well, we'll have to, yeah, I can bump up those are rookie numbers here, <laughs> but I'm like, right, right. I just, I just had to laugh cause you know, vice, you know? Um, and so, uh, maybe you had better tell from your perspective just, uh, to kick us off here. What, what, well, look, the, the very short story is, um, uh, well, I don't think I could tell a very short story, but, but I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a minute. Yeah. I'll give you a minute and a half. Yeah, story. sure. <laughs> so we'd done all this stuff, taking on the lobbyists and the insiders. And then we took on the great sacred cow of insiders in Missouri, which was that they had this completely fraudulent program called the lie tech program. The lie tech program was this lie where they claimed, and they're taking $150 million a year away from the people of Missouri and turning around and giving it to lobbyists and insiders, claiming that they were doing something good around housing. The whole thing was fraudulent. And it was a complete scheme. And this isn't just me saying this. Audit after audit of the program had showed that only 42% of the money actually went to anything near positive, mm-hmm. okay? So you do the quick math. That's You're on the order of seven, $700 million over the previous decade, which had gone to insiders. Now, that's wow. a lot of money in the state of Missouri, $700 million. These guys were also the single biggest donors to Missouri politics. And you won't be surprised. They gave to everybody. Mm-hmm. They gave to the Republican Party. They gave to the Democratic Party. They gave to every single politician. They're the biggest donors. And so you think about, and I'll just, for your listeners, it's important to understand the scam, how the government steals from you. What happens is you pay your tax money. They take that money, okay? In this case, $150 million a year. They give it away to lobbyists and insiders. So they take your money, they stole it from you, they give it to their friends then their friends take part of that $150 million and give it back to the politicians in, ter- in forms of donations 
so that the politicians will continue the theft. Those Caribbean vacations are expensive. Yes, yes, <laughs> they got to do something with that cash. <laughs> so, so everyone had recognized that this program was uh, uh, was fraudulent, but nobody for decades had been willing to do anything about it. So, when I became governor, you can see the theme. Like we actually did what we said we were going to do, and I called in. We think that this was the first time that happened in the history of Missouri. It's one of these. Um, uh, the way this program was set up, they had actually made it very hard to kill. So there's a special board that actually authorized all of this fraud instead of the legislature voting on it. So I appointed people to the board who I knew would kill the program, but I couldn't appoint all of them. So it was still 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, but the governor technically had a vote. But in, again, the history of Missouri, nobody had actually, no governor had ever voted. Mm-hmm. Well, when the um, uh, vote came up to reauthorize this fraud and the theft, I called into the meeting personally and voted no. So you were the swing vote. We we've already taken away their gifts. We slammed shut the revolving door. We're not meeting with them, and now we took away their hundred and fifty million dollars a year in fraud. And we used it, by the way, to fund things like education. But that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a separate story, okay? So we're actually doing the things that we said we were going to do. <clears throat> now, that would have been enough to upset everybody. But then I also did stuff that really, really deeply upset the entire um, national liberal establishment. So it's important for your listeners to remember, Ferguson, Missouri, was the home of the anti-police movement. Before I had become governor in 2015, that entire fraudulent story of Ferguson had happened. And that was where the previous governor, Jay Nixon, had allowed looting and rioting in the state of Missouri. In the fall of 2017, when I'm governor, we had an incident in the state of Missouri where a white police officer had shot and killed a black man on duty and then was charged with a crime. Okay, And he's, he's going through the trial and... As the date of the verdict is approaching, we start getting all of these activists, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, they're all coming to Missouri, and they make all of these threats that no matter that unless he's found guilty, they said, we're going to burn Missouri to the ground. Unless he's found guilty, you won't even remember Ferguson. That sounds a bit like a terrorist threat. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, 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 that essentially is what it is, okay? Like, we're going to burn Missouri to the ground. You won't even remember Ferguson, okay? <clears throat> now... I had, since I'd become go- been governor, I've been very clear, like, this is not happening to Missouri again. I'm going to have the backs of our police officers. And I had an incredible team, public safety team. And I, I could talk about in detail the plan we put together at a strategic, operational, and tactical level to absolutely make sure that didn't happen. And, by the way, I'm very proud of this, Robert. We did it protecting everyone's constitutional rights. That's good. So, so, so it's always good. It's essential. It's actually essential. So, for example, again, you talk about the heart and the fist. The night before the verdict came out, down, I got on stage with the fiance of the man who'd been killed, and I said, "We both said together, no matter what happens tomorrow, there are going to be people who are upset about the verdict." And I was very clear. And if you are upset, you have the right to protest. And what's going to happen tomorrow? If you want to protest the verdict, you will find that police officers are out there to protect you. And dude, our police officers did an incredible job. They they followed through on that. 
And they, they, they were you had bicycle patrols, giving people water, making sure that traffic, like they made sure that people could protest because that was their right. I also said, let's also be very clear, that throwing a brick through a window is not free speech. You assault a police officer, you are going to jail. And the previous governor had said, we wanted to give people a safe space to loot and burn. I said, if you, if you loot and you burn in Missouri when I'm governor, the only safe space you're going to have is in a jail cell. So we're very clear. The rules were very clear. Peaceful protest, absolutely 100%. Police are going to be on your side. The minute you start assaulting somebody, you start you try you try to loot and burn, you're going to be arrested. And we did it. Mm-hmm. We did it. <clears throat> Long story short, after three days, and, and they had sent everybody. Keep in mind, this was the only thing happening in Missouri at the time. They sent people from, from uh, Black Lives Matter, from Antifa, from all over the country, came to Missouri to protest, to riot, to loot, burn. After three days, they left. They had overturned some potted plants and broken a few windows. Mm-hmm. So this put me on the national target list, George Soros and company, right? Saying like, dude, this guy showed that you don't have to allow looting and burning. That's a problem. This is a big problem for them. Because everybody saw later, like, like, like there's one of the reasons they had to get rid of me. You follow the Greitens playbook, there's no need for looting and burning. And you saw, everybody saw what happened during George Floyd, 2020, all of that nonsense all over, all over the entire country. Yeah. Okay. So that put us on the, uh, on the national stage. And George Soros had funded a corrupt prosecutor in the city of St. Louis. Her name was Kim Gardner. And when I say George Soros funded, I'll be very clear. He gave money to a PAC. He was the only donor to it. <laughs> that PAC... Provided it was either 62 or 73 percent of her funding. Okay, so she is a George Soros fund and owned and owned and owned prosecutor. That was interesting. I I never caught the that amount yeah. or that. I mean, she she's bought and paid for then. Hundred percent bought and paid for, and we now know we now know that in the fall of 2017, before any of her her fake fraudulent allegations came out, they started drawing up an indictment against me. They'd actually dated. They didn't know what the crime was. <laughs> no, seriously. This is a real story. This is how this works. She started drawing up an indictment because the idea was, and it goes back to Joseph Stalin, okay? It's an old tactic, right? Stalin's head of the secret police said, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. You point the finger at the target and we will come up with a crime. We will figure out a way to use the system to attack them. So in... Uh, 2017, they start writing an indictment. They're not sure what the crime is going to be yet, but they decided that they were going to create a crime. And then later in uh, 2018, Kim Gardner is like, okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, create some kind of crime against him. And there was a woman, I had had an affair before I was governor. And I had been very like, clear about this with my wife it was something that was personal and when i say affair let's also be clear like i saw this woman like four or five times we never had sex like it was but it was you know i saw her and i and i shouldn't have okay and uh so what they did was they wanted to create a crime so uh she couldn't get the police she also had like 30 of her own investigators nobody would investigate me because like what is the evidence like what crime do you want to charge him with she had nothing so she hired a corrupt former FBI agent named William Tisby mm-hmm. to make up a false case. They then went to this woman and they paid her $120,000 in cash. It was given to her and her ex-husband to make up false allegations. 
Yeah, how did that work? Do you have any idea who gave them money? Well, this is this is the thing. It's still a mystery to this day that the journalists won't investigate. It was a it was a journalist. Well, how do they know the money exists in the first place? Well, because it ended up coming out that the lawyer who received it admitted, and there were other journalists who found out that it was one hundred twenty thousand dollars in cash delivered by a journalist. It was a journalist who actually handed the $120,000 in cash over. And this is a guy who is a convicted felon himself, who uh, was, you know, owed money to the state for taxes and everything, and claimed that the $120,000 in, in cash was his, that it was just sitting around. Well, you can, you can imagine who all of the lobbyists were, who had a lot of money that they were willing to pay. So she made up some false accusations. Later, when she was under oath, she admitted, she said, I remembered my accusations through a dream. <laughs> look, it sounds ridiculous, but, and, and look, I can laugh about this now, but I want to be clear, going through this was hell. I bet. This was utter hell, okay? She's hired a corrupt former FBI agent. He goes and makes up a fake case. Now, by the way, that guy was later charged with seven felonies for perjury and evidence tampering for creating a false case against me. Mm -hmm. Okay, but we're talking about this now as we're sitting here in 2024. That justice didn't happen to like a year and a half after they claim that I'm guilty of all these crimes. Yeah, he, he got it knocked down to a misdemeanor something, something. But Right. He later pled, but it was seven felonies he yeah. was charged with for perjury and evidence tampering for creating a false case. The prosecutor, the Soros funded prosecutor was found guilty of lying over 60 times to the court. She was later admonished and fined by the Missouri Supreme Court, and she later had to resign, both for what she did in my case and in others. So she ended up having to resign. The, uh, the woman who they paid to make the false accusations, she admits that she remembered them through a dream, and the corrupt former FBI agent is charged with seven felonies for perjury and evidence tampering. So, But, but what's, what's important to remember is that all of that justice, all of that truth came months and years later. Mm -hmm. What they did when I was governor, they literally charged me with a crime. Just like President Trump, they made me go down and take a mugshot. <laughs> and now look, people are getting a little wiser to this game, to the Stalinist game. But at the time, people are like, well, I mean, dude, like, if you ever mugshot taken, like, you must have done something. Like, that's what people are thinking. Um, I have so many thoughts about this. So yeah. there's this, uh, there's this, I think it's, um, John Ronson maybe wrote the book on it. So you've been publicly shamed and sitting on the other side of the fence, um, reading this book. I know a lot of the cases better than John Ronson mm, knows those mm, cases mm, because mm, I, mm. I, I've been around on the internet right. a long time. Right. I was, this is internet culture and I'm right. just deep, deep in internet right. culture. And in some cases, I was involved in some of those things that happened mm -hmm. in some weird tangential mm -hmm. way. And reading it from the perspective of the person who was shamed, I was ashamed. I'm like, oh my God, I have just been a monster, like a, like a, a full-blown monster, you know? Like, I'm not a Navy SEAL crashing through your door, but I'll make you want to kill yourself. Um, and... <sighs> I had this real big epiphany when I read that book. I'm like, I, I, I cannot live my life like that anymore. Right. I cannot right. be on right. the offensive on right. these. Right. 
and, and I remember one of the cases, I wasn't involved in this one, but I remember when it happened, um, some woman went overseas and she, she texted something like, I'm going to Africa. I hope I don't get AIDS or something. It was, is not a funny joke. Uh, it was sort of set off the cuff. She had like 50 Twitter followers or something. <laughs> she had like this tiny right. following. And when she woke up, like the entire internet hated her. Uh, she got off her plane in Africa and she was fired and the internet was after her. And uh, I know some people in town who um, they just named their com- their co- uh, their company after a uh, after a song that they liked, and it turns out that song is about slavery and and killing killing black people. But they didn't know that they're kind of just dumb. Call it ignorance. Call it whatever you want. That uh, I think like, I've met with these people, and I'm I feel really bad for them. Like that's a terrible situation you've been put in, and I'm not even sure like they would do it differently. You know what I mean? There's like no way to like educate them without fully throwing the entire internet's weight behind how important it is to not make this tiny little, really kind of a mistake. And funny enough, I've heard people make that same age joke. Uh, professional comedians make effectively the exact same joke. Maybe they phrase it slightly better or differently, but, um, and they didn't get canceled. Their lives didn't get turned upside down. And so when I, when I was going through this and like trying to like process like what was going on. Like let's say, let's say for a second, everything was real and this was all real. Why now? Why, why wait to your governor to start this process? Like why, why hasn't this been something that's been around for a long time? And, and why, if she's worried that these things, these, these things are real or she thinks it's going to, why would she do it when you're governor? Why wouldn't she do it when you're like have no power and now you have a lot of power? Like just the timing just didn't make sense. And there's a lot about the case. Like as I was reading it, like it's like this kind of just sounds like it's all made up. Um, well, it literally was all made up. <laughs> but here, let me let me tell you a couple of things. Like first, like one of the big challenges you're having is that you're you're using logic. <laughs> Okay. And logic is not allowed in these things. Like, whoa, wait a second. How does that make sense? Right? Like literally people are saying like, wait a second, they're charging him for a crime and there's no evidence. This, this wasn't me saying that there's no, there was no evidence at the time. Well, well, not just, not just that. Uh, After Kim was ejected, they got another special prosecutor to come in because they were wanted to, they wanted to, they wanted to keep attacking me. Well, they wanted to go after her. They wanted potentially to use her on the stand, which is never a good sign when they're having to bring themselves in on the case. But then also, like, anyway, it all went down, and she said, "I remember listening to this." She's like, "the the, the reporter was asking, so would you would you bring this to? Are you thinking about bringing this, or could you bring it, or what what the circumstances?" And she's like, "No, there's no there's no evidence at all. It's just her word, and like none, zero evidence." She's like, "There's no corroboration of anything," and she was actually trying to like make this big statement about it. But one part of that was especially weird. She's like this very impassioned thing where she believes this this victim and blah, blah, blah. But then she stops like the, the talk track ended and like there's a period. And I think she just kind of forgot that she's supposed to like and then, oh, and there's this thing about this guy and she's supposed to downplay it. But she's using the same voice as if she's very upset about this other thing that doesn't make sense with the first thing she's saying. She's talking about now the the woman's husband and like how he hasn't been deposed yet, but that's like opposing her opinion on, on the other thing because like he has something to gain from this, but she's supposed to be saying like, right. It's just like, clearly she had, 
there was so much wrong with the case. Um, even like if if you had done it, they fucked up the case. If you didn't do it, they fucked up the case. It's just so much incompetence. And then on top of this, like like multiple perjury things going on from multiple people, not just one person. I, like, holy shit! But, but here's the thing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. Their objective, and this is what's really important for everybody who's listening to understand for your own life, their objective is not justice. Okay. And one of the reasons why I was so blindsided by it and the reason why we got crushed by it was that I still grew up with and I still believed that the American justice system sought justice. I believed that, and I was told, you know, my lawyers are like, look, dude, I mean, there's no evidence. Like, they got to throw this out, okay? But because of a lack of courage, like, no, no, we'll just keep it going. Like, and you're going through hell. Mm-hmm. You're going through absolute hell. And oh, by the way, this is an important reminder for people. When the government of the United States attacks you, they pay for it with taxpayer money. You pay out of your own pocket to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. So you have unlimited resources who are coming after you. Every single day that they are attacking you, your kid's college fund is being bled. Sure. Every single day. So they're not interested in justice. And the whole thing is structured to attack you, to drain you, and to also make you ineffective. I was crushing it. I was a fantastic governor. We were getting all of these things done, and their objective is not actually justice. They didn't necessarily need to win a case. They just had to ruin my life. Mm-hmm. And I also want to point out, for a lot of people who are listening, I was actually, all things considered, and now look, if I had said this to myself back in 2019, I might have punched myself in the face, okay? <laughs> but, but listen, man, I, was, I turned out to be actually very lucky. And the reason was, that in my case, all of these false accusations were actually proven to be false. Yeah, sure. It wasn't just me saying that they were false. I was very fortunate. A lot of people who have this done to them, who are attacked and who are lied about, never ever get the vindication of the truth really coming out. Now the journalists still today, like they don't want to print the truth, but the fact that like this guy was charged with seven felonies, that Kim Gardner was found to have lied 60 times, the fact that like they paid this woman the bribes and she said she remembered it through a dream, like all of those things for me at least came out and a lot of other people never get that vindication. So, okay, you're sitting there multi-months into this and I mean, I don't think that there's an end in sight. I mean, there might be an end in eventually but you're getting bled out as you said in college well, there's funds. an end in the fact that like we all die <laughs> true but, that's but, the true but, stoic but but <laughs> but they were not going to stop right this was their business their entire business the entire business of the establishment of the state of missouri was to steal money from people and give it to their friends. That was their business. And the minute I left, they started their business back up. So I yeah. I can't remember exactly. I think it was the Missouri Ethics Commission, the MEC. Right, right. Uh, they had 23 uh, subpoenas, 20 interviews, 8,000 documents, and they fully exonerated you. 100%. 
It was the longest investigation in the history of the Missouri Ethics Commission. And at the end of it, they said, we found no evidence of any wrongdoing by Eric Crichton's. Yeah. So, and, w- and one of their implications was, um, I, can't, I can't remember if they out and out said it, but they ve- basically said that this in no way stops um, you from going and suing these people right, and going right, after right. them. Like, yeah. this is not... This is not meant to hinder you in any in any uh, legal sense. So uh, the MEC effectively said something like, um, "You're fully exonerated." They had like twenty three uh, subpoenas and eight thousand. Fully 8, exonerated. You can go sue these guys <laughs> if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> so, so f- fast forwarding a little bit, we're going to do this slightly out of order. Yeah. I think it's useful. Um, d- did you like just go? We're done, or are you going like, "Wow, I need to." I need to go back and make this right uh, because there's a lot of people who kind of ruined your life. Dude, it was awful what they did. Are you, are you and thinking about is, retribution or are you? Just well, look, the good news is we actually still have, I mean, it's still a decision to be, to be made um, <clears throat> that because of a number of factors, the statute of limitations is actually still open mm-hmm. on it. And we could in fact go back and sue some of those, those folks. And, and I haven't made a final decision on that. I think that what I wrestle with, again, you come back to identity, right? And yeah. in some, in who, who is Eric at this point? Right, right. Well, no, look, it's, it's a real, it's a real question. When people have done you wrong, it's a real question. Like when people have done you wrong, it's very, very important that you send a clear message that like, that's not going to be tolerated. You can't continue to do that. that that's an important thing to do. At the same time, it's also a question of like how much of my life do and my energy do I want to spend trying to get some sort of public, more public retribution when I know all the facts, anybody who cares to know all the facts knows all of the facts, and like I have a really great life and I'm able to do amazing things with my my boys and I I am not having to deal with that uh, sort of world uh, right now in that way. Now, I still believe for me, there is absolutely a very important mission in my life. And that also involves leadership in public and taking on a lot of these questions. The tactical or it's really the operational question of whether or not you actually do that by suing people who've already been proven to be frauds and liars, you know that's that's a, that's an open it's an open question because that's also it's not free. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but it's also not free for them. You know, right, <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's a real thing. Um, so that's that's a good one. So you ended up pulling the plug and yeah. uh, on the on the camp on the um, the term. What was that decision? What was what went through your mind? Well, it was incredibly hard to do at the time. I bet. It was an incredibly hard thing to do. Look, I had done all the things that we had talked about. I've been a Rhodes Scholar, I did a PhD, did the humanitarian work, been a Navy SEAL, done all these athletic things. I, you know, did all these fantastic things for veterans. And then not only that, I was crushing it as governor. I mean, we fully funded education in the Missouri for the first time in a generation. One of the ways that we, ways that we were able to do that 
was by <laughs> taking money away from all of these uh, corrupt people. Right? We did all of these positive things for police officers, for our military, all of these really, really good things. You know, I, I actually um, released people from prison uh, who were innocent. Right? And I did that in my first year. Most governors wait until like the very end of their term. I did that because it was wrong wrong that, that these people were were in prison i had this and one why make them wait years <laughs> well well it's just it's just wrong look the, the reason why you go into the office is to to right wrongs okay there's this woman judy henderson who had been falsely um uh charged with murder it was actually her boyfriend who murdered the guy judy had actually gotten shot when this happened okay and she was uh scheduled to be in prison for 50 years the previous three governors the previous three governors i believe the board of probation and parole had all recommended that she be released, but they wouldn't do it. Okay. Sure. Well, well, they, they don't do it because one of the reasons why um, governors don't release people is because there were, it's why they wait to the end. It's because it's a big political risk. If I let somebody out of prison, even if they're innocent, but then they go and do something bad. Well, that's, that's a story from my whole term. Mm -hmm. So because they're thinking about themselves, because it's a political risk, they don't do it until the very end of their term. I told my team when I took office, I said, look, I want to send a message very clearly that um, like we're going to stand for real justice. So find, uh, I'll actually, let me, this let, is let, all very ironic. <laughs> yeah, let, let me, let me, let me, let me, I'll actually tell you the Judy Henderson story because it's actually really, really remarkable. And then we'll, we'll, we'll circle back. It's an incredible story. <clears throat> and she's actually become a very good friend. So uh, Judy, you know, as I mentioned, uh, she'd been, you know, kind of falsely. Now, now she, she takes responsibility for being there. She takes responsibility for kind of like she did not murder a guy. And she actually got shot in the process later. And she had terrible injustices happened to her. She had the same lawyer as the boyfriend who'd actually committed the crime. She Ugh. was offered a deal to testify, but the, her lawyer never told her about the deal <laughs> judy ended up going to prison but the boyfriend got off okay like the uh, the boyfriend let her hired somebody to kill her in prison all right this it's a crazy story and thankfully she's actually working on a book that'll come out oh, you, should, you should have her on, on your on Sounds your podcast at some point she, she's she's an amazing woman okay so so but i told the team early on i said we're gonna go through all of these cases and we're gonna make sure that if there are people this is an important power the pardon power and the power to commute sentences. And we're going to use it if there's the right case. I said, find, find me the best case. So um, the team goes, and uh, one of my lawyers goes and meets with Judy Henderson. And he, I, I asked, well, how was it? He comes back, he's like, dude, she's like the most amazing woman I've ever met on the planet. I have no idea how she is this positive and this like amazing after 30-some years in prison for something that she didn't do. It's, it's insane. I said, good. I was like, great. Now, and we... Like I, I'm a big reader. I had read hundreds of pages of documents about the case, every single thing. I wanted to make sure if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We had um, a letter, uh, I believe it was either from the from the judge or the former prosecutor, saying how unjust the sentence was that it should be reversed. Again, three previous boards of probation and parole. So here's here's the great story though. <clears throat> We've we're we're about to make the final decision, okay, and they're bringing me the paperwork, and I see that on her paperwork, it says that she'd received, and I can't remember the exact phrase, it's like three demerits. I don't know if the word was demerit or something like that, but it's like three demerits for conduct or something. And I said to the team, what are these demerits for on her thing? And they're like, 
I, I don't know. But they said, I don't know, but it's minor. Like they're not, they're not important things. It just happens. And I was like, look, dude, if I'm going to let her out of prison, I want to know what these are. So they came back and they're like, her demerits were for contraband. Like, oh, God, Can't dude, I really, really wanted to do this. It seemed right, but I can't. Some of that contraband, like, all right, what, what? And then I'm like, well, what was it? Was it like a, a knife? Was it drugs? And this is what they said to me. They said, her contraband was that she had too many books in her cell. <laughs> she had a book taken away from her. They said, do you know what that book was? That it was Resilience by Eric Greitens. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I said, all right, this is a sign <laughs> from the universe. So I actually, and I, and I, and I, and Robert, I'm very proud of this. I went up there myself personally to the prison and uh, we'd called the family, told her that we we're going to do this. And I went up there uh, the week before Christmas and, uh, and told her like, she was free to go home. Wow. How yeah. cool. Yeah. I forgot you'd asked a question before we got on to the, to the, well, I mean, you had to make the decision to pull the plug. Yes, yes, yes. And so, so look, uh, it was incredibly hard and I'll tell you in the last five years, it's something that I've actually really, um, thought through and I actually now can tell you, I think it was the most courageous decision I've ever had to make. Because I didn't know what was going to be on the other side. Mm. I knew for sure this is not something that I can maintain as a dad and believe that this is actually good for my kids. For a long time, I felt like, okay, well, look, I mean, this is obviously a lie and they're doing this and they're pushing all of this. So I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep fighting. But one of the things people don't realize if you can try, and it's very hard to do, but if you imagine yourself in this situation, like your mugshot is not just like on a newspaper. It's around the world. Mm-hmm. And everyone believes this lie. Only just a small circle of people who really know you, like this is obviously absurd. Or then there's a slightly larger circle of people who start like you using logic. And asking questions and like, whoa, 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 something's off here. And it's also, and not, and so then they're draining your bank account, millions of dollars in legal bills. And then this is the other thing that people don't account for. It is hell on everyone around you. Of course. It's hell on my mom. It's hell on my dad. It's hell on everyone who's taking care of the kids. It is absolute hell and it was a very hard decision to make because all the other decisions that I had made, right? So I, you know, you talked about, right? After Oxford, I'm like, you know what? Oscar, PhD, all right, cool. I'm going to put that aside and I'm going to go and do this other cool thing as a, as a, as a SEAL. Um, and even, uh, you know, leaving uh, the SEAL teams and deciding, you know what? I'm going to put all that stuff away, right? I was a SEAL, PhD, all that stuff. And, and instead, I'm going to live on an air mattress and start a nonprofit organization for veterans. Or the decision after all of that, hey, I've got New York Times bestsellers. I'm making money. I've got a great business. I'm going to put all of that aside and I'm going to go and run for governor. But I, it, each other place, I knew where I was going. What was so hard about this, Robert, was that 
I had to really have faith. It was a leap. Yeah. <laughs> like you say leap, and immediately I put like a leap into fire yeah. across burning when I like this was this was a this is a bloody, vicious, burned leap. Yeah, because it didn't like stop the day you left. No. No, no, no. And this is what's important to understand also and why it's so important to have sympathy also for not for me, but for other people who've been through this, is it it continues for years. They continue the nonsense. And they keep it and it doesn't matter if all this stuff I told you that it was proven false, they'll still write about people. And it was alleged that, yeah. right? And they'll put the word alleged in, even though, no, it was proven false that. So, so it continues and continues and you have to, at a certain point, have, I think, real faith. Yeah, so what do you think about moral panic in general now that you've been on the other side of it? Because there's so many things that people just get their hackles up about CNN runs some article and everyone goes, oh, that person's horrible or whatever. And that's just someone's life completely ruined every time they do that. Yeah, it is one of, there are many of them, but it's one of the most disgusting elements of our culture. And it's also an indication of the degeneration of our culture. Okay. How is it an indication of the degeneration of our culture? Well, we, we're living in a very degenerative time. How do you know that's the case? It's just like, um, so we talked about the Greeks, right? It's very similar to when Plato was writing the Republic. It came at the end of the golden age of Greece. All of the beautiful things that we think of as Greece, the Parthenon and Pericles and Sophocles plays and the Greek spirit of rational inquiry, all of that stuff has come to an end because they lost the Peloponnesian War terribly. They descend into civil war. And then the justice system, right? Keep in mind this place that was supposed to be the land of free thinking. People could actually have free thoughts. It's a new idea. Men could think for themselves. Citizens could think for themselves. They put on trial the man who sang uncomfortable things, Socrates, and they kill him for saying things that made people uncomfortable. And Plato then is writing the Republic at this time. It's a time of tremendous degeneration. And one of the, the signs that we have tremendous degeneration, now, and there's an opportunity for rebirth that comes out of degeneration, so we can talk about the positive side of this in a moment if, if it's helpful. But one of the signs of degeneration is the everywhere you go, the tearing down. The tearing down of old institutions, the tearing down of standards, the, literally the tearing down of statues, the tearing down of history. That is a sign of degeneration and of self-hatred. When people start tearing things down, it's just like if you went into your own house and you start ripping everything down, everything that's valuable, all of your family photos, and you're going to throw all this stuff. Even though your family might not have been perfect, you don't pull everything down and you throw it all away and you're going to burn your own house down. Like That is self-hatred and degeneration. And this is a symbol because it's happening, so it was happening and it continues to happen so much in the culture. It's a symbol of cultural uh, degeneration. Mm -hmm. Now, one again... I'm always a hopeful guy, right? Even after living through all of this. One of the things that's slightly hopeful is that back when this was happening to me in 2018, there were still a lot of people who believed the mainstream media. It was happening in 2017. Don't you remember? They signed the order. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Before. They, they decided they were going to charge me for a crime in 2017, yeah. right? And then and then they, they, they went to work on it in 2018. So... <laughs> So, but you know, back then, and it seems like ancient history is only five years ago, but there were still some people who like believed the mainstream media. 
This is before all of the COVID nonsense when people finally realize, well, like the government is actually just lying to you. Your U.S. government is lying to you, bald-faced lies. And people didn't realize that at the time. So I think that's starting to happen. And people realize now much more that if you really want to get to the truth, you have to think for yourself and you have to go outside of the establishment media. So after the dust has settled and yeah. you're sort of out of that, did you end up reading your own book? I'm curious. Yes, dude. <laughs> so let me tell let me tell you let me tell you some a cool story. All right. This is one of the great things about friends. Okay. <clears throat> is that I remember and I was at some very, very, very low points. I bet. Okay. Incredibly low. You were the most hated man in Missouri. If oh, <laughs> oh, for sure. For, that, that was for sure. But also, okay, look, I'd done all this stuff with veterans. I'd written a book on resilience. But the real hardship comes when you turn on yourself, man. Oof. That. All the other stuff, all the people outside of you, like, bring it. Bring it. Okay, I actually enjoy that. 70 to 1. Cool. Let me get my buddy. I'll make a 70 to two. And then we got you. <laughs> right? Like that's a good, but when you turn on yourself, wow. That's rough. That's bad. That's hell. That's dangerous. That's real, real, pure, vicious hardship. Mm -hmm. And when I'm at one of those points, <laughs> Drew Sheets calls me. Yeah. And send you a, <laughs> a copy of your own book. <laughs> no, even, even better, even better, man. He calls me, I picked up the phone and he didn't say anything. And he just hung with me just like this. Hmm. And after about 10 seconds, he said, yeah. I said, yeah, man. He didn't need to say anything else. Just knowing that, like, he was there. He's on my side. Huge. And I will tell you, actually, I wish that I had read it first. But one of the things that was really hard for me as I turned on myself was that I, you know, we all have our different ways that we beat ourselves up. For me, one of the things I was doing was like, dude, you helped all of these veterans overcome all of this stuff. You wrote a book on resilience and look at you. Look at you. Look at how you're, look at how you're doing this, how you're beating yourself up. So I was like whipping myself because I'd been through all of this terrible, terrible viciousness. And then, I was, and then I made it worse by beating myself up for not healing more quickly. And I realized now, and it's one of the things, you know, again, uh, you, you continue to learn. There are certain processes that have a natural time to them that cannot be rushed. And one of those is some of this healing, right? Just like you can't say like, let's, can we get this pregnancy going? Like, no, no, let's do this in five months. Like you can't, you can't do it. Like, can we get this tree to grow faster? Right. Sure. You can create the conditions. Okay. There's the sunlight. There's the, there's the, the good care. Like Just it, add more dads. It'll speed up. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can create the conditions 
for um, your healing. But there's certain things that just take time. So and part of my viciousness was that I was turning on myself and I wouldn't read the book because I felt like I didn't want to face, I'm the guy who said all of this, but look at me and now I'm broken. And then as I came out, I started reading the book and I can tell you this and I hope it sounds right. I read the book and I was like, that is a great book. <laughs> no, I really did. I actually, I, believe you. I felt like I'd put it in a time capsule for myself. Yeah, I, I believe. I actually felt like, oh my God. And I read it, Robert. I wrote it, but I felt like a different person had actually wrote it for me. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, <laughs> that was crazy. But like reading my own book at that time as I came out was one of the things that really helped me to really step out of that very dark time. I completely believe that because I mean, not having read it before, I want to read it again. I'm like, Oh geez, I gotta, I gotta, there's so much in it. I'm like, I might have to, I might have to put it aside, read it and then read it again and then put it aside and read it. Right. (laughs) I'm going to be one of those people. It's got it all marked up, but cool. Um, so, would you ever do politics again now that you know what you know, or is that just a hard pass? <laughs> I would. You would. I would. I would. And um, I think that at the end of the day, right, you have to ask yourself always, not, not you have to, you get to ask yourself, what is this pain for? And Mother Teresa, I worked in one of her homes for the destitute and dying, and I remember reading this about her. I actually met her before she before she died in India. And I remember reading this at the time and thinking it was kind of crazy, right? She had said something to someone about how much God must love you to have given you this suffering. And I read it like that. Just, I don't know, like suffering, suffering. At the time when I read it, I just I couldn't quite get it. You have the opportunity in your life, like this is part of the resilience book, like like pain, you can choose for it to break you. Or you can say like, man, wow, wow. Like the dude you're talking to now is literally physically stronger, physically faster, right? Uh, first of all, than I was when I was 26, right? Which is cool. But also in terms of like my spiritual and emotional and psychological strength that has come from walking through that hellfire is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I can't say that this is true every single day. Okay. Sure. But, but I've gotten to the point now where I can tell you 98 days out of a hundred, I'm glad for it. 98 days out of a hundred, I'm able to say like, wow, the power that I now have and feel as a man having been through that hell and walked out on the other side and to be as successful and happy and capable as I am right now, I'm grateful for it. And the question is like, what is that for? I'm very fortunate. (laughs) This is sound crazy, but there are very few people in the country who've been through something that vicious who understand quite as deeply exactly how corrupt the system is, mm-hmm. who understand in great detail in my bones exactly what is happening in the country and why and how they are trying to destroy it. 
It is a gift. It's a Thank weird you. gift, but it's a gift. <laughs> no, look, it is, it, it, is, it, is, it is a gift. It is a gift, and it is not one that I asked for. And like I said, if you'd come to me after I've been out of office, if you come to me in 2019, if I'd come to myself in 2019 and said, oh, that's a gift, dude, I'd be like, dude, I am going like, to, this is not a gift, right? <laughs> I didn't want to believe that that was my gift, but in fact, it was. In fact, it was. The level of happiness, self-assurance, self-trust, and vision that I now have was a tremendous gift. So you're going to write another book? Yes. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Are you willing to talk about it at all? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm writing it right now. And, you know, we mentioned, you know, Plato is writing the Republic, as we mentioned, at the gold end of the golden age of Greece. And the essential question for Plato is, uh, what is justice? What is justice for a person? But also, like, what is justice for a republic? And, of course, he's writing this. You know, people are saying, oh, Plato, he was a philosopher, et cetera. Plato's actually, it's interesting. Plato was a nickname that was given to him because he was a broad-shouldered wrestler. Um, and think about what his life was like. Like, he's born in still kind of the tail end of the golden age of Greece, and then everything falls apart. They lose the Peloponnesian War. They descend into civil war. And his mentor, talk about like what happened to me. Socrates had to drink hemlock. And we tend to, when we hear these stories, it's reasons why biography is so valuable. You hear these stories and you think like, okay, well, yeah, Socrates, he was a teacher and then he drank. Like, stop. Think like, what was that like? He watched his teacher go through an insanely unjust trial and then have to drink hemlock and died, mm-hmm. right? So he's writing and, this. And and did it sort of weirdly willingly to yes. almost to prove a point. Yes. Socrates yes. was a badass. Right? <laughs> no, talk about, talk about like amazing strength of character, okay? Uh-huh. And that's why you and I are here in the year 2023 or 2024 talking about Socrates because he did that, right? And, you know, you, you look back at, at every, you know, historical biblical figure, right? Moses, hounded. Joseph, sold into slavery. And then he's lied about by Potiphar's wife and he spends years in prison, right? Like, whether you're, you know, uh, executed like Socrates, crucified, all of these things happen to people who are, um, who, who actually live big lives and, and, leave, and leave, leave a legacy. Um, look, look at Lincoln. Okay. So, um, this book that I'm writing now is sort of in the same way saying, okay, where are we at in this historical moment? And what does that mean for you, Robert? What does that mean for the listener? How do we take actual action? What can we do? How do we become stronger physically? How do we become more independent? How do we become more sane? How do we have more self-trust? How do we do all of these things? for ourselves in this environment and what are the seeds of hope for the rebirth and regeneration that's that can and must come out of this degeneration and decline what's the name do you have a name i do not have an official name yet so so i will tell you with all of these books with all of these books the last uh piece was actually the name interesting yeah you had to kind of create it and then at the end of the creation, you're like, aha, this is what it is. 
Well, I can't wait to read it, sir. Thanks, man. Um, any last things you want to send us off with? Um, I would just say, first of all, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you for course. having me. I uh, really appreciate 100%. it. Really admire what you are doing. Really, ad- yeah. No, I think it's it's so important. And I want. I, I will say this. You are part of the answer. People right now are craving to have real conversation, to actually learn and hear from other people. And everybody who's listening to not just this episode, but other episodes of your podcast, they are part, I believe, of the underground resistance of people who are willing to like be strong, be intelligent, be thoughtful, actually engage in issues and that is what we need so i really appreciate what you're doing and honored to be on with you uh, i love that uh so where can people find you or get in contact with you or? so uh the best place is my website uh ericgreitens.com it's e-r-i-c-g-r-e-i-t-e-n-s.com that's ericgreitens.com or you can go out to any of the social media which is just at eric Greitens. love it thank you so much Thanks, for doing brother. this man really appreciate it yeah yeah appreciate you <laughs> yeah, man. yeah yeah, too, yeah. Man. thank you thank uh-huh. you